In the past uh, four months, you might be thinking, Jesus, this podcast channel has really turned into a fan page for Elden Ring, huh? Eh, I wouldn't say you're lying, but no, it's not. It just happens to be Elden Ring is one of the best games I've ever played in my life. Considering that 80% of what I talk about on this channel is about video games. That holds a huge impact. So please bear with me. I'm not trying to bore bog or uh, corrode anybody who's tired or fatigued of hearing about Elden Ring. It's not my intention. Um, but even for people who've played it, I, I when I play video games, when I watch films, when I listen to hip-hop, I don't just enjoy it. I do. I love it. Some of my favorite stuff to, to enjoy. But um, I also really take an as many analytical uh, approaches to it and really try to decipher why I love it and why it's so popular or so beloved by others. Right? And that includes doing uh, research outside of the actual interaction with the original content, right? Um, but yeah, this, this podcast channel is majority about video games, but I don't just talk about video games as people may understand as you probably understand at this point because it's a free thinking off the top like a freestyle of thoughts I don't I might have bullet points but I don't script anything Um, I could uh, and it might be better more conducive to the listenership if if you think that's true hit me up on Instagram at psychic34 but for what it is I like to allow the free flow of thought because a lot of things are interconnected in ways that I may not fully know until I articulate it in these things. And video games is a unique art form, as I've said before, because it blends all of these other art forms that I hold with high regard, right? Of course, traditional visual art from painting and sculpting and, and modeling and, and things of that nature, right? And digital graphic art marriaging with that. And then, of course, uh, film, video, cinematics, right? visual, camera work, all of that. Audio, sound, score, music, sound effects, sound design across the, the spectrum. And of course, the engagement, the interactive, what makes it a game as opposed to an intricate movie. So, the industry is also interesting. Because it holds a lot of parallels to many other entertainment industries, but it's new. So there's a lot more politics and, and conflict that go on in the industry of video games unlike other industries. So while just talking about video games is one thing, and that's what I do, I also interconnect it with a whole bunch of other information and thought and connections, right? Because it's just what I know how to talk about forever. I could talk about films. I could talk about hip-hop. Um, and, I, and I do it at, at times. I do discuss those things on my podcast channel. But video games I talk about as a fan, as a connoisseur. Whereas I feel more safe to do that in that position. Whereas in hip-hop and film, I'm a fan. I'm a connoisseur. I'm also a creator in those fields. So when I talk about it, yeah, I'm talking about it from a more valid point than maybe some Joshua who's never uh, directed a, sh- a film or somebody who's never put out a hip hop album because I've done those things. But eh, for me, it's one of those things where if I do that, I really 
don't want to fuck up my terminology, my jargon. I can't be as free flow thought, if that makes sense. I can. I can. Trust me. If you got me in a room and you asked me something about film, oh, I could go on until you have to shut me the fuck up or until my girlfriend has to uh, pinch my ears to say, hey, all right, give the other person a chance to speak now. you got to be polite to other people. <laughs> but in reality... It's one of those things where, yeah, I I could definitely talk about it, probably more extensively and more intricately than uh, video games. And I might be able to do, oh, what makes a film popular or, you know, what's interesting about box office revenue or the history film. I could definitely do that. But the thing is, I just, I'm, it's a field I'm still forever learning in and studying. And while I feel more confident in it than maybe some of my peers, and it's, I could definitely provide information in a digestible way or at least in an interesting way for those who find what I, how I construct words interesting. I, I just am also in a weird spot where I, I don't really... If I do that, I have to be more meticulous and I prefer free flow of thought as of right now. So um, I... And I can still do free flow of thought on film. I just have to have a few notes to keep me on track and, um, and have a lot of disclaimers and footnotes in case I don't have my data quite right because... Some things I learned may be out of date by the time I say it, right? So, but don't fear if, if you're not here for the video game talk. Well, just understand when I talk about video games, it also will relate to many other things you may find interested in. Of course, if it's not for you, it's not for you. That's okay. I don't mind. And then, of course, springboarding off of that, I'm happy to discuss stuff uh, beyond that. Hip-hop, film, other artistry, cultural things. Um, stuff that I know enough about to talk freely about. Um, and uh, add personal anecdotes and stories and observations, of course, to make it not just some other person talking about it because there's enough people on the internet talking about video games. I've seen enough YouTube videos. I've seen enough things. Um, so the only difference between you watching somebody on YouTube or listening to a separate podcast about the same topic is you're just hearing it from my point of view, my perspective, my observations, and my understanding. And if you want to hear it like that, then you're in the right place. So thank you, everybody, who has been supporting this podcast channel. Thank you, everybody, who's been supporting me, as a uh, whether it's on my psychic uh, Instagram or whether it's through my albums or through my short films. I appreciate the love and support. So yes, today I'm going to discuss Elden Ring, but it's a little, it's not another review of Elden Ring. I've done two episodes on that. Please go check that out. That's solely on Elden Ring, right? And a lot of the themes that I'm going to talk about today I've already discussed, but I really want to focus in on this because it's important and it's been ruminating in my mind as I've been, or I've been ruminating on it, I should say. It's been bouncing around in my mind. Um, because, uh, I haven't been able to play Elden Ring for the past couple weeks. I'm traveling, so I don't have my Xbox. Um, I actually brought it, I just, I can't plug it in due to the place I'm in. It's just not conducive. So, um, so I've been thinking about it more, right? As I've been going through a slight withdrawal, because I'm, I'm a little addicted. Now, to be honest with you, I take a few days away from Elden Ring every once in a while. Um, and a couple months ago, I started to get not tired of the game, just fatigued with the amount of stuff I still wanted and had to do in Elden Ring, right? Purely by my own volition, right? No, nothing in the game was forcing me to, to do that, of course. And so I took a, a week break, actually, as I was finishing uh, pre-production for my short film and entering production, so... Uh, I, I just wanted to focus on that 
not get too distracted. Of course, during production, during shooting, when I came home to relax and decompress, I got back in Elden Ring, but I took a week-long hiatus. And that was nice. It was a little refresher. And when I came back to the game, I loved it even more. That's how good the game is, people. That's how good this video game is. That's how good Elden Ring is, and there's many other games like it in the world. And I'm not saying there's nothing else like Elden Ring. I'm not saying there's no better game. In fact, even though Elden Ring is... The reason why it's so surprising to me is because it there's not many video games where I can quickly judge and say well not quickly 200 hours into this game mind you not quickly but in a in under a year in under half a year when i've i played too much of this game too quickly in under half a year where i could definitively say yeah this is top five easily if not top three right now part of that is a lot of my, my top three also has to do with where I was in my life and how it helped me there and then just how much fun I had, how much I played it, how much I love it, and how much, if I went back and played it, I still enjoy it, even if it's not quite the same. And my top three, just so you know, as of right now, is Halo Reach, first FPS, had the most fun with. I moved the, for the first time across states, and this is what I got to play with friends, so a lot of good memories, and it's just a well-made game across the board. Then, Rainbow Six Siege. One of the most intricate, fun shooters. And I played it consistently three to four times a week at minimum for four years straight. That's... There's no other game I've done that with. For that long? That long a stretch? That consistently? And had that much fun? And sure, past couple years I've been on and off it, but that's natural. So Rainbow Six Siege is number two. And then... Oddly enough, Splinter Cell Blacklist. Incredible game to me. I just had so much fun. I loved it. It was, came, once again, in an important time in my life, and it was, it's a great game. It's still a great game, but that might be bumped to number four, and Elden Ring might take that number three spot. Now, Elden Ring doesn't compare remotely to Halo in Rainbow Six, so it's kind of one of those tricky ones, but for an all-time personal favorite list of mine, right, that I hold high regard... And, you know, Sekiro is up there. Sekiro is up there. Top 20, possibly top 10. And it's a phenomenal game. But Elden Ring just shot that way back. Not too far back, but significantly changed my perception of Sekiro. And that was from, from software as well. So, I do love this game. And I do find... It has done a lot of things that has made me fall in love with aspects of video games that I was becoming fatigued with and gave me faith in the industry because it sold well, because it's getting critical reception, people are going to copy this. People have copied Soulsborns, but mind you, From Software has been creating Soulsborns for decades, so why hasn't it been talked about as much as Elden Ring? Well, because it was niche, and even as good as it was, and they are phenomenal, it takes a certain type of player to play them. And the impression that Soulsborne games have on the general populace is not positive. Now, I don't think many people say they're not good games. Everyone, uh, even if they hate them, they don't disagree that they're not well-made games. They just, they're so well-made and their core intent is not friendly to the player base. It's designed to hurt you. It's designed to break you. In a, in a time where video games aren't necessarily easy, but they're not necessarily punishing. 
It's a whole generation. Two. Two to three now. Uh, two. Two and a half generations that... One or two. It just depends. I guess it depends on your age. I I'm, I'm, don't really fully understand generations, if you can tell. But there are, is at least one, if not almost two generations now, that haven't had to experience games like arcade games. The philosophy of arcade games is quite unique and is the birth of video games. And I've talked about this before. And it's actually the core fundamental structure of what From Software utilizes in Elden Ring. You slot in 25 cents or more, but hopefully, at the, well, especially at the time, just a quarter. And the game you played had no checkpoints, no save points. It wasn't necessarily as complex. Could have been, it was complex for the time, and it was intricate for the time, but it wasn't, it's not complex. This, the philosophy of, of the game, and, and I talked about this in the, in the video game industry episode, my longest one, actually, where I talked about what a perfect game design is, and I referenced Elden Ring for following this golden rule of mine that I, that I think is a golden rule is it's, it's a simple objective with an easy to pick up and, and get a feel for especially if you know video games it doesn't have to be super easy like press one button and it's done for you but easy to get a feel for like it's an intuitive control scheme and intuitive mechanics in the world from a gameplay standpoint and fluid and, and feels good and then with all those, with those two things combined, the objective is simple to understand. The goal, the main objective, the main story beat, however you want to present it, is simple to understand. And the player agency is still intact for you to decide how you want to conquer that objective. And the obstacles and the hurdles and the challenges that face you are genuinely challenging to the extent and the conditions of what the game environment is. It doesn't have to be butt-fuck hard where you're getting murdered every time, right? The challenge could be like Mario, where it's just, it, you have to time things right for your platforming. It could be like Rocket League, where you also have to time things and jump it and get the goals. Those games are challenging. They are not punishing. They have consequences if you don't do it right, but it doesn't make you feel like a worse person. Usually. It just depends on who you are, but that's not their philosophy. Dark Souls is harder. It literally will make you feel like a terrible, untalented piece of shit at times. Doesn't matter how high your self-confidence is. It will shatter it. It will. I, I guarantee you. If you play enough of the game, at some point, you will lose your damn mind. You will hit a point in those games, and in Sekiro, and in Bloodborne, and any Soulsborne other than Elden Ring, well, sort of, but I'll get into that. You'll hit a point in the game where you're like, how the fuck? <laughs> how do I, I, I can't, I can't beat this. I, I have spent two hours on this, two and a half hours. There's no progress being made. I'm barely denting this boss. It's incredible design. It's a beautiful boss. It's great artwork. You know what you're doing. You can kill the minions now. You're at this point. This boss just kicks the shit out of you for hours and hours and hours. No matter what you do and how you play and what you apply, nothing changes. And then it clicks and you figure it out because your brain catches up with your fingers and you figure out how to move and maneuver. You figure out the pattern. You learn how to operate. You learn what's most efficient to use against the boss. You apply it. You fuck up a lot more. You die probably for another two hours. And then you finally figure it out fully and you vanquish the enemy. 
I'm not saying it's always four hours. Sometimes it's 30 minutes. Sometimes it's five minutes. But my point is, it can be four hours for one boss. It very easily can be four hours for one boss in the older games. And it's, they're difficult. They're designed to be difficult. But everything in that world is designed to kill you, which I call the, the one to three philosophy. That's why I told my buddy Seize. Shout out to Seize 209. S-E-I-Z 209. He's got some new music on the way. He's a dope rapper. He's got a Twitch stream. Follow him on Instagram. Seize 209. Um, I told him this when he bought Elden Ring. I said, listen, everything in this game is going to fucking kill you. Do not expect this to be like any RPG you've played before. You have a huge health pool and they take a couple hits and you take it. No, 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 no. This ain't no Assassin's Creed bullshit. This isn't one tap your enemy and they die instantly in a nice little stabby cinematic. Every swing you take does damage, sure. And you might be able to kill them, but they'll be able to kill you even faster. If it takes you two to four hits, it takes them one to three. The one to three rule. Some enemies will kill you in one fucking hit, and you can't do jack shit about it other than dodge and pray to the good lords of the lands between. But, um, but yeah, you become more powerful, you get better gear, you, you know, you level up, you get better weapons, and you become more accustomed and in and, and tune with what's going on. So, yeah, by the time you play more, you don't die as much, but holy fuck. <laughs> You'll still die, and you'll still hit points where things will just fucking murk you. Doesn't matter what it is. And it doesn't matter how big the enemy is. It could be a small, it could be two feet tall enemy, and that fucker will jump on your back, cut your throat, and let you bleed out. There is an enemy like that. They are small. They don't seem very menacing. They do a crap ton of damage to you. But they have very small health. So the one to three rule. Almost every enemy in Elden Ring and in Dark Souls in general can kill you in one to three hits, regardless of what you can do to them. Once you know that philosophy going in, that's the entire gameplay. So the bosses are especially difficult. But you know that going in. So it's not unfair, right? It's not unfair because that is the principle that they have taught you by the time you reach your boss. Unless you're unlucky and you fight the boss the first opening of the game, which is usually designed to kill you. Miyazaki... uh, the lead director of From Software and of Elden Ring said death is a mechanic of his games. It is punishing to the to an extent, but it's not meant to it's not meant as a failure point. It is meant as a learning point in those games. Not in real life. I'm not saying you're a failure if you die, I'm just saying don't try dying. We don't know if you respawn. No one has proof of that. So <laughs> but in a game and in in his specifically in From Software Games, that is the philosophy. So why am I talking about Elden Ring again? Well, here's why. Because I find the game to be phenomenal, as I've stated. And this is a long intro and just kind of a brief uh, thesis on why I'm going to get into. So I'm going to talk about Elden Ring. I'm going to talk about its mechanics and stuff. But most importantly, what this episode is about is open world games. Elden Ring is an open world game. As I've stated before, when it first was announced as that, I was skeptical and worried because From Software has never done an open world game and they have made phenomenal games and level designs and I was terrified they'd fuck this up because open world games are few and far between good and they are either a home run smashing out of the park or they are uh, a bunt that bounces, the pitcher catches and gets a... Uh, 
you know, a double play. It's one or the other. It is never a fucking middle ground where it's like, it's good. It's okay. We had a good time. Actually, Halo Infinite. That's kind of one of the only examples of of right down the middle. But, no. (laughs) No. Most open world games are either phenomenal or they're terrible. And they're not terrible, but not good in the open world design. So I'm going to get into that, and I'm going to use Elden Ring as the benchmark because that has inspired me to look at open worlds in a new way because I haven't played a game like this. Not many. It's one of, like I said, one of my favorite games, so it's why I'm using it. But also, it's one of the best design games I've ever seen. So let's get into it. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for sticking with me on the 20-minute long intro slash thesis. I appreciate the support, as always. So, let's get into it. Open-world game design. So, in video games of recent... Yeah, past five years. Six years, especially. Even late, later than that. Actually, actually, for the past decade. But more and more common and easy to generate in the past five or six years. There are a multitude of games that are open world. And open world, by definition, in a video game context, is purely just a game that has a massive, sprawling open world. One large map, interconnected and interlocked by maybe regions or buildings or cityscapes and and different uh, areas, with specific objectives, items, quests, NPCs, non-playable characters, uh, and other things within those regions. That's it. There's no more to it. It's not levels. It's not like Donkey Kong. You clear a level, get to the next one. It's not like Halo. It's not stages. It's not like Sifu. It's five main maps you gotta learn. And it's not like Jedi Fallen Order or Sekiro or Dark Souls, which isn't an open world. It's an open level. Or Sniper Elite, for that example. Which means it's not one giant, expansive open world. It is large set pieces. Each mission in the new Sniper Elite is a large, sprawling, like an open world. Not nearly as big as one singular open world, like GTA or Elden Ring or Elden Ring or Elder Scrolls or anything like that. But it's a large enough thing where you can conquer objectives in a multitude of ways. So it's an open level. Return uh, Jedi Fallen Order, same way. Huge open level, three or four different ways to attack an objective, exploration routes. It's not tight. It's not corridor. Call of Duty's never been open world or open level. It's quite restrictive and cinematic. It pulls you along through the story in a good six to eight hour tempo. Far Cry, Assassin's Creed, Watch Dogs, The Division, um, Halo Infinite, GTA, uh, Red Dead Redemption, Horizon Zero and Forbidden the the Horizon franchise I guess is what it's called um, and a bunch of other games that I you know a bajillion games are open world and there's no inherent problem with a game being open world there's no that's not an actual issue okay that's not bad thing. Cyberpunk, that's another good one. Um, these games aren't bad because they're open world. In fact, some of them are great. Um, a lot of them are. They're not inherently bad because of open world. That doesn't mean your game is just immediately, eh, not good. It means, though, you're walking a very dangerous line. 
So, if you are dropped in the middle of New York City, Manhattan, downtown, Times Square, let's say, say you just plopped right fucking there, and you have never been there, and your goal for the day is to not be killed by an agent hunting you down, and you have to get to a safe point, but you don't exactly know where that is. Now, that might be terrifying for you to experience firsthand, but if it's a video game that you're playing, that sounds kind of interesting, huh? Or if it's a movie, you're watching somebody try to survive those odds. That's interesting. That's intriguing. They don't know where they are. They have to figure it out and navigate it and learn and overcome a challenge and um, stay away from uh, an external threat facing them. That seems interesting, right? I think so. Most people do. General philosophy of conflict uh, and of an inciting incident in storytelling, in film, in, in books, in literature in general, in television, and in video games follows kind of the same general thought. Inciting incident and the general external or internal conflict have to be, have to present a real sense of danger. And have to keep the audience in suspense and has to have the protagonist, the, i.e. the player in this example, the video game player, uh, overcome the uh, hurdles, the adversities, the challenges that face them, and accomplish the objective at hand. Get to that checkpoint. Get to that safe house. Avoid death. Those are the main goals. Avoid this agent trying to kill you. Get to the safe house. Right? So the difference is if it took place in a very small subsect of New York. Chinatown, which isn't that small, but not nearly as big as all of Manhattan, okay? And that's the only bounds that you have. That's a much faster, quicker, easier pace to digest and to stay on track. Therefore, it might actually be more fun, more engaging, okay? Uh, If it was even smaller and it wasn't a safe house, but it was a safe room and you're in one building and you just have to navigate the corridors of this bigger hotel, that's even more, con- you know, constrained. And in some regards, better pacing, better tone, maybe. Maybe better action set pieces that can be orchestrated and controlled by the creator. Less player agency because you can only operate within those grounds. But you still have enough to operate. And it allows better pacing. Okay? Now, now imagine... Right, we go back to the Manhattan. You drop dead center Times Square. You have all of, all of Manhattan. Right. To to traverse and find this place. Okay, so let's drop those other ones out. All right. Since we're talking just open world, this would be the Manhattan analogy. Yeah. So we drop those out of the equation. Those, not to disregard them. Those could work actually maybe better, or if not, just be as fun. So I'm not saying that games that are more linear or more in an open level. In fact, I often have more fun in those kinds of games, traditionally. So I actually enjoy those, that pacing. I'm a cinematic guy, what can I say? It's up to your own preference, right? But say the player or the protagonist in this scenario, if you want to think of it as a video game or a movie or putting yourself in this position, you're dropped in Manhattan. You have no information. dropped in Times Square, Manhattan. You have no idea what the fuck to do. You don't actually, you've never been there, so you actually have no direct idea or feel of the area. 
and you know two things. You got to get to safety. You got to get to the safety checkpoint, safe house, whatever. And you can't get killed by this guy hunting you down who's pretty good at killing and hunting. Okay? So, within the confines of the open world strategy, this is why it's hard to keep pacing. Because if I say there's no time limit and you can get to that end objective however you see fit are you gonna go straight there well now if you're in person you will but let's just say you're playing a video game you're not you're not if it was a one-to-one recreation of manhattan you are for sure gonna explore it's interesting why wouldn't you because it's not directly chasing you. He's just in the area looking for you. So he doesn't have a pinpoint idea of... The killer doesn't have a pinpoint idea of where you are. They're just in the general area. So you do have a threat looming. But it's not right there. And when it is right there, you might not know how to handle it. Or you might. Maybe you can evade. Maybe you can fight back. Maybe you can hide. I don't really know. That's up to you. But my point is... There's other things to do. In a video game, when someone drops you in an open world, they're designing this open world from the ground up. It's a piece of art. And it should be respected. It should be explored. It should be... And if there's no way to explore it or interact with it, which is a huge fucking failure, and no point to make an open world, in my opinion, in a video game, but even if it is just for set pieces and there's not much to interact with, you know, to appreciate the, the beauty of creating it, it's cool. It's a good set piece. It's a great scale. And it's complex to make. So no doubt that it's an, it's an incredible feat. So let's say it's a completely one-to-one, high-definition recreation of Manhattan and almost all of its interactable. Wow, that would be incredible. That would actually be a really cool game. In fact, no one take this idea from me. I'm going to have to pitch this to a few game devs. It's a very simple concept, but it might work. <laughs> Maybe it's multiple agents hunting you down. You just got to fight them, like Matrix style. I don't know. Anyway, so you try to get through, you try to navigate, you try to survive, okay? Um, You're going to find people. You're going to meet people. You're going to ask them for help. You're going to allocate resources. You're going to find temporary housing and shelter and safe points. You're going to explore. You're going to see what's up with this world. You're going to check out who's doing what, where, when, how, and how can it benefit your overarching goal. And how can it make the more... uh, slower points in the progression of this threat enjoyable that's natural our brains look for motion look for conflict look for activity look for things to do sitting idly by is okay for a little while but not not conducive to how we operate for very long so that's all well and good if there's nothing to tell you where and how to explore and you get to do it by your own volition and figure it out and overcome the objective and get to safety. It's more fun. It's more interesting. And you get to set your own path, overcome your objective the way you see fit. And nothing is telling you the wiser other than the very basic structure that you've been given to operate in. That allows more freedom ag- freedom, and, and agency and enjoyment, usually from an interactive level. What that sacrifices, though, unlike being in a singular building or in Chinatown, right, is the pacing and the story. 
because you can do things at your own pace in this scale. So it means that the main beats and threads and story pacing may be lost or may take a long time to get back to. That's okay. That is part of the sacrifice that is made when going open world. And that is something devs and players have to understand. If you're allowing this open world to be the way it is, you should not write the best story you've ever written in your life that you want players to digest and understand. Because they won't. Not that they won't. They, they'll still, they still might finish it. They still might get the story. That, but the pacing is different. It's why movies are written and filmed the way they are and edited the way they are. Film has got it down pat. We know that pretty much anything beyond two hours is stretching people's patience to sit in one place and follow one storyline, okay, Uh, in in one singular sitting, right? And then two and a half to three hours is a stretch, and that's only for special circumstances. That's if the creator, the franchise, and or, of course, the story really deems it. And often it's for good merit. In fact, sometimes the longest movies I've ever watched are the shortest in the runtime. Testament to poor editing. So, um... So, yeah. I'm giving you that example. Now, let's run with the same example, the New York uh, storyline, okay? Trapped in there, trying to run from a killer, right? So then, let's say, from that, I'll get into the overarching thing. I'll drop this analogy soon. Just stick with me. I'm trying to paint a more digestible picture for those who may need it. It's sometimes how my brain works. Bear with me. Say you're there, and instead of no, instead of not knowing where you are, every even if you don't actually know where you are, everything is floating around telling you what it is. There are sign postings and and checklists and boxes and markers and icons and things that you can open up a map and see and do everything is spelled out laid out exactly in fact you probably maybe even the final checkpoint every small item every person everything you can interact with is already laid out and telling you where and how to do so I guarantee you, if you're playing a video game like that, you are going to spend way less time there. Because the core fundamental idea of an open world is when you design one is to allow the player free agency to explore at their volition and understand and figure out the mechanics, the world, and the story at their own pace. A few points of guidance, sure. General markers like... Hey, go this way. Maybe. That might be helpful so people don't get lost and frustrated. But very minimal. You can't corrupt and pollute things and oversaturate with a bunch of general knowledge that may not be pertinent. Right? It may not have any relevance to the exact task at hand. That's often the issue so I spell that analogy out for you for you know to simplify it for people who may not play video games and for people who do play video games to fully understand what this is about what I'm getting at open world games can be wonderful 
and is a perfectly fine tool for narrative-driven gameplay and, and expansive games. And in theory, it's perfectly fine. In execution, it varies. And those are the two best examples. That, uh... And it's not just that. There is more to it than just that. I'm just giving, giving the surface level idea through that analogy. So, open world games, when it gives you a sense of exploration and allows you to figure out, learn, and explore at your own pace is usually the most rewarding. But that's not all it is. You're not just playing it to just find shit. Playing it to finish the main objective and smaller objectives within each area. Okay, great. Pacing is tricky. It's the hardest part of making an open world game that I've heard and read from many game devs. Because they want to still have the story or the main goal intact, but they also don't want people to lose interest before they can reach the end credits. So, how do you do that properly? There's no... There's no direct way. Depends on the person, depends on the time, depends on life. (laughs) Depends on the story, depends on the world, depends on the artwork. There's so many variables, you can't actually have a set formula for that. But what you can do is not overwhelm the player. Too much information is just as hurtful as too little. And in the context of what the game is... There's a lot of information that doesn't need to be said. You can't treat your player base like an age that they're not for an average player base. Now, I'm talking AAA larger studios for the most part. So they know. They have the data. They have the statistics. They know who plays their games. They know the average age range. Of course, they may have different goals on who they're tailoring the game for, but that doesn't mean that it can't be accommodating for both. They know their audience, especially established franchises. And even if they don't, the very easiest indicator for them is the ESRB rating. If the game is rated M for mature, 17 and up, or maybe it's 16 up. Is it 17 or 16 up? I forget. Anyway, if it's that age range, make it. Make it a couple years younger from certain areas and regions, especially the beginning, so they get a feel for it, right? It's okay if the first couple hours is a little easier to get someone warmed up, especially if it's a brand new IP, a new franchise, nothing that's been seen before, or something that is just new in its mechanics. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but don't overwhelm anyone with the data. But, you know, a little simpler. Maybe designed for fourteen to 13 to 14-year-olds for the first two or three hours, and then progressively it gets back in that average age range that either your player base actually is or that at the very little if you don't know how to gauge that is the ESRB rating. Yes, the ESRB rating, which is, you know, the parental guidance rating, much like what films have. Um, sure, it's, it's a system in place for, um, for gauging the what's appropriate for an age. So if you have a 10-year-old, E10 and below is fine. Anything teen and up may be a little risque, you know? And that's that's at the discretion of the, the kid and the, and the parent, of course. But, um, but it's just one of those things. It's just a general guidance, and it's perfectly fine to have. 
Um, I don't think a game should be judged off it. If a game's rated M, that doesn't actually inherently mean it's uber-violent and fucked up. It could just mean there's some swear words. What it doesn't account for, and what it maybe should use as a benchmark as well, is the themes. And sometimes it's just often hand-in-hand. A more mature adult theme will often have more violence, more sexual content, more drugs use, more profanity, right? And that's natural, but not always. If a game is more complex and requires the intelligence and the emotional and mental maturity of somebody, even if the content isn't necessarily that graphic or gory, then that should be accounted for, not in the actual rating of the game because that could gridlock a lot of people out of it, not for that reason, but should be accounted for by the devs once it's rated so they know maybe who to fine-tune the game for from an intellect standpoint because the worst thing a game can do is treat its average audience like they're idiots. When you hold a gamer's hand for too long, they resent your hand. Even if your intentions are good. If you're a Far Cry or an Assassin's Creed, I don't know the average age range, but I know for sure you don't need to cater it purely for children. And you don't need to cater it for gamers who have never picked up a video game. Should always have elements for people who are new to getting in games. Always. Every game should have um, either a basic tutorial that's optional. Could be skippable for people who already know the game, but should be there. And some general guides and data in the game where they can look up the control schemes. And look up a general index or look up a, you know, or maybe just have a QR code or a link somewhere so they can go and look it up on the website if you don't want to put that in the game. Okay? Just so people who are new to games aren't completely left out because that's not good either. But my point is don't hold people's hands and don't overload them with data. When you do that, it's not fun. Playing video games shouldn't feel like a chore. We play video games so we can escape the chores we have to do. (laughs) It's a pretty simple concept. It's to have fun. Now, everyone has a different idea of fun. But open world games, in its purest form, in its best form, excites the audience by allowing them to explore puts them in enough action and conflicts with good pacing between story beats or even with or without story beats puts them in enough conflict and engagement where they can make their own actions and choices i'm not saying each conflict engagement have to be action-packed violent it doesn't matter it could be a dialogue it's just some conflict that threatens the player's chances of accomplishing their goal right that hurdle that obstacle in their way It has to be frequent enough. You can't just have it once in a blue moon in an open world. Because it's no longer interesting or exciting. They're just meandering through an open vista. Even if it's a beautifully made thing. If you just put filler shit in there. It's not going to do anything. Allow people to explore. Allow people to overcome obstacles. And allow people to accomplish the end goal. Don't bloat a game and don't make a game open world for the sake of saying it's open world and don't make a game 500 hours when it only has to be 20. A game that's 20 to 30 hours is plenty of time. That's a lot of time, people. It doesn't have to get... Just because the technology is getting better and just because open worlds are more popular, 
we see this progression of video games, open worlds, boasting how long it takes to complete them. That's not a bragging right to me. That means you don't know how to edit your fucking game. I do not want to play your game for 500 hours. Let me correct that. I might. I actually don't know. I haven't played it. What I do know is I don't want to go into a game thinking I have to put in 500 hours to fully understand or enjoy it. But the pros of an open world game allows beautiful artwork, intricate level design, an expansive region for exploration, uh, for diversity of enemy type or just exploration points and allows for a natural sense of progression through a world design for you to play in like a true sandbox. Those are the pros. And many games have elements or follow that beautifully. Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, though I haven't played it fully, I've played parts of it, but I can speak from a general consensus and a critical standpoint and from a just a, what devs say and how it's built. So that's what I'm speaking from, even though I haven't personally played a lot of it. Um, some of the first Assassin's Creed's, the first three, uh, Far Cry 3, for example, is pretty good at it. Um, even Cyberpunk, though it still follows a lot of the trends, it was pretty revolutionary. I'll get to that. Um, Red Dead has its moments. Grand Theft Auto V also. Some of these games are punctuated by the time they were designed, so you have to take that into context. You know, there's a handful. There's plenty of great game, open world game designs. But there's a lot of elements and aspects in the great ones that don't work and that are repeated. And the philosophies of the game design that follow suit. In Elden Ring, from my personal experience and from what I've read and heard, is by far one of the best designs of an open world ever made. So let's get into the cons, the true cons of open world game design. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you're all doing well. So I gave you my general thesis, right? And some context to why I'm talking about this. I've uh, discussed through an analogy and then through some examples and just general definitions, terms, and what I think makes a good open world and what is an open world and some elements that make a bad one. So let's get into the specific cons of an open world. In 2022, an open world game means two things. It means you have run out of ideas and you're going to die of originality. There's not going to be any new thought that comes to your game design. Game may still be selling and making games, but it doesn't mean anything. It's pointless to play. Or it means you're changing things because you have to or because the story allows it. Now, the changing things because you have to because you have to make a general evolution and this makes sense to the story, to the gameplay. It seems like you can do it. It seems to like an executable task, that's usually a good thing. That just means the intention is good and they go in knowing this is what they must do and they, they set out to do it well. It just The game couldn't work in another setting, right? That, that's just how it is sometimes. Sometimes the game is expansive and intricate and it needs to be uh, realized in an open-world environment. That's what allows it the freedom to operate the way it needs to. That's perfectly fine. In fact, usually that's great. Doesn't always land in every area, but it's good. 
Cyberpunk, GTA, Elden Ring, Red Dead, uh, uh, Horizon, um, Assassin's Creed, the first three, four or five, really. Uh, those games cannot operate if they, they, they could, they're just, they wouldn't be as good or as important if they weren't open world. Just wouldn't work to the same way. Fortnite. Fortnite's an open world. It's a little different, but it is an open world. Warzone 2, any battle royale is an open world. Sort of. It's a little different because it's a multiplayer, so it's on a timer. It's not single player. Most games I'm talking about may have multiplayer elements, but they're also primarily single player in its uh, in its authorship. So, uh, authorship, is that a word? In its intent, original design, construction. So, yeah. Um... But, but what makes a bad open world? Or, and I'm not talking about the entirety of the game. I'm not talking necessarily the story or the gameplay mechanics, though. I'll get to that. Uh, but what makes an open world itself, the atmosphere, the design, the layout of the world that you're interacting with, what makes that function poorly? Not inherently bad. This is all subjective, by the way. This is my personal opinion, as probably figured out, especially through the intro and thesis. But... Um, but what elements and what things make it m less efficient in being an open world or less uh, fun or just downright poorly designed? From my research, from my personal playing and experience, and from my opinion and understanding of everything, here's what I've formulated. When we discuss what the intention of an open world is, which I did in the last segment, right? to incite natural curiosity and exploration, to reward that, right? And to still keep in pace with the general story, theme, tone, the conflict at hand, whether external, internal, or both, to allow challenges, barricades, and hurdles to be placed at a relatively decent pace so no monotony is brought upon the player, no fatigue, and to allow them to execute the uh, goals on a small scale, per region, per singular objective, per whatever they set out to do, and the overarching goal. In its general philosophy, that was, that's what makes a good game and a good story, to some extent. Though with a game to allow player choice and freedom of agency within the confines of what you've built is the most fundamental thing. And to have good gameplay mechanics. And by that I mean literally decent and intuitive control schemes that are fun to use with enough variety and depth in whatever mechanics you have in place to allow experimentation, exploration, and fun. It's a sandbox, people. These are games, after all. They're called video games. They're not called video homework or chores. <laughs> right? It's not called video work. That's a Zoom call. Right? This isn't meant to be boring or fatiguing. And that's something I think we forget. Because we pay $60 or because we dedicate 60 hours... If you no longer have fun in a video game consistently, there are days where you're just not going to have fun. That happens. There are days where you're just not enjoying the game that you might usually enjoy. Okay? But I mean if you're consistently over a long period of time no longer happy enjoying it and would rather be doing something else, change it. And actually, that's a good philosophy and rule of life. I think, personally. That's just something I operate by. 
Now, I don't just say, oh, I'm not happy, I'm done. No, no, no. But if I'm genuinely no longer happy, I'm not learning, I'm not engaging, and I'm not gaining anything from it, and I'm not giving anything to it, if there's no benefit, if I'm miserable, unhappy, or losing my satisfaction, then I will leave it amicably. I won't hate it. I won't hold anything against it. I won't burn it to the ground. I won't say, fuck that. That didn't, just because it didn't work for me after time. Things don't work forever. That's part of life. People, relationships, businesses, organizations, philosophies, religions, practices, habits, hobbies, general things don't last forever. Some do, but a lot don't. That's okay. Doesn't have to. The things you liked as a kid, a lot of that you may still like. A lot of it you don't. It's just how life works. Don't beat yourself up over those kinds of things, yeah? Sometimes it's hard because of the social pressures, because of the time we invested, because we're afraid that we're burning bridges, because we're afraid we're, we're giving up something we put so much work in. We're not. If you had a good time when you did it and if you learned a lot and if it's made you a more well-rounded individual or a more educated person or at least gave you some life experience, there's no waste to it. You lived your life. That's life. You can't waste time by living life if you're living it. It may feel like that. It may feel like you wasted time. That's part of the guilt sometimes. That's not necessarily true. Now... I'm talking about it in the life standpoint. If it's like a business or a friend or a relationship, I'm not saying immediately drop it. Take time, really reflect, really analyze, really do your digging research, really think about it, really feel. Are you in a depression? Are you going through a midlife crisis? Did you lose someone you love? Are you just need a little change of scenery and a pace? Do you need a break? There's a lot of other things you have to ask yourself and try and push and explore before you hit the button and say, I can't do this anymore for real. Because that does hurt people. That does have consequences. You do have to analyze that. I've moved around a lot. I've left friendships behind, right? I've declined work offers. I've done a lot of stuff, and I don't regret any of it. Because, one, when I do it, when I disengage from something, I don't do it to hurt anybody. I don't do it out of my emotional spite or excitement I do it with intent and with lasting logical analysis if that makes sense like I take a long time to decipher and figure it out months weeks months sometimes years but usually months I played baseball for six years it was an integral part of my life and I loved it I started getting more tired of it. I started getting fatigued. I got injured. I got mistreated. I stopped liking it. And I had other interests coming into fruition that just took more time and and interested me more. I was 13. I played baseball for six years and I loved it. And I loved every second, almost every second of it. Sure, it had its down points, but I loved almost every minute of it. Six years, people. That's a long time. When you're 13, that's half of my... That's almost half of my life at that point. It's just shy of it. It's a long time. I wasn't just playing it. I was playing video games. I was watching it. I was going to Braves games. I loved baseball. And I still do. But I just didn't love playing it as much. I just 
in general didn't love it. And then there are a few inciting incidents that really sped up my process of realizing this ain't for me anymore. But I didn't quit the days where my coach was mean to me or the day I uh, got injured. I didn't just say, ah, fuck this, I'm done. That would have been irrational. I still played for the rest of the season. I still finished my season. I still pushed through. Hated it, but I pushed through. And I really thought about it. I'm like, okay, am I just having a rough season? I'm just not enjoying it right now? Will I regret this? I really took a deep dive. Three or four months. And then when the season was over for the rest of the, you know, because it was mostly summer and a little bit of fall, then through fall and winter, until early spring, until I had to, uh, until late winter, until I had to make my decision if I'm going to return. And I said, eh, no, same for me anymore. I kind of was leaning that way, but I really gave time to analyze it. I didn't just say, all right, fuck this, I'm out. On day one, like the first day I had it. So that's just how I operate. I don't, I don't just make impulsive decisions. I really analyze it, think about it, put myself in different perspectives, and really try to soak it in. It's not always right. And sometimes I'm biased towards it already. I'm already leaning towards it. Sometimes deep in my soul, I've already made the decision. I just have to... But even if I've done that, I still really push to really check myself and make sure I'm not making a decision without... Not that's, that it's wrong that I'm making a decision with the proper information and time to process and understand why I'm making it. It's the least I can do if I'm making such a big decision to leave something I've been doing for six years. So, see, I told you, this isn't just about video games. So anyway, that's just a general philosophy that I follow and general practice that I do when I have to exit from things. I have had to. You just have to. I've moved around a lot, people. Multiple schools, multiple friendships, multiple states. At that point, you get good at doing what I'm doing. But my point... Sorry. My girlfriend's rabbit's losing his mind. (laughs) Uh, But my point is... That I, uh, in a video game, that same, on a much more micro scale, not six years, mind you, maybe, if you played the game for that long, but it's the same philosophy. If you don't have fun in it, truly, and you don't enjoy it, and you give it some time to really analyze it, then put it down. Because there's always another game. There's always something new to explore. Or maybe not even a video game, maybe go do something else, but... There's always something else to the world to learn, explore, and enjoy. If it doesn't last forever, that's okay. It hurts, it sucks, and sometimes you wish it wasn't true. But that's just how it is sometimes. And no one should be mad at themselves, and I don't think anyone should be upset with that person for giving up that thing, whether it's quitting baseball or whether it's quitting a video game. There are video games I've stopped playing that piss off my friends to no end. Why you stop playing? Then you did one for me. I'm sorry. Even if I'm pushing myself to play it just for you, I, I just, why, why am I doing it? I don't enjoy it. There are games that we both enjoy. There are games that you don't enjoy that I enjoy. I don't make you play those. I don't pressure you into them. And if I do, by all means, please tell me so. And we don't have to do them together. I'll do them on my own. I am an only child. Trust me, I know how to play video games by myself. I'm not offended. Might hurt, might suck, maybe boring at times, but I'm not offended if someone's like, oh, you know what, this ain't for me anymore. I, you know, it's okay. It's natural. 
So with video games, it's the same thing. It's much more microcosm, but the problem with it is a lot of people, when they invest their time and money, they feel obligated and guilt-tripped into playing it through. I am a victim to this many times over. Doesn't matter if my core philosophy in dealing with real life is actually pretty solid and has worked. It's not perfect. By no means. I've fucked it up many times. But, um, but <laughs> in a video game, it's tricky because you, you still spend a lot of time, guys. Like, ah, I fucked up. And a lot of money. There are certain games I know if I stop playing them as consistently and I allow to try other games, oh, good God, there's a good chance I'm not coming back to them. And then I don't know if that has to do with the game or my own desires or new games. You know, who knows? There's a bunch of variables at play. That's not how you judge a game. So that's, I, I know that's a tangent, but I just wanted people to know there's no problem dropping the game. If you bought a new game and you played it for 10 hours and you're like, okay, this ain't me. That's okay. It sucks because you lose that money, but you, you know what? You learn something. And hopefully, and this is more important than anything, you learn not to buy a game like that without doing your due diligence. Doesn't mean that all games like that one that you didn't love aren't going to be great. Hell, it might be your favorite one. Case in point, open worlds are not my thing. Almost every time I invest in one, I spend a good amount of time, and maybe I have fun. There's a good chance. And I spend my money, and sometimes I get my money's worth. A lot of times, I don't. I lose an exorbitant amount of time and a little bit of money in the process. It's maddening. Then again, my top three game of all time is an open world. So I'm actually plenty okay with all the sacrifices I've made to learn to get to the point of something I can enjoy. And that goes for the same with life, people. You make decisions, you have consequences, things happen in your life. Sometimes they're the most horrendous things on earth. And I really wish it couldn't, didn't have to be that way, but sometimes it is. But at the end of the day, you learn from that, God willing. You apply that next time you go into a certain circumstance. Utilize what you've learned and what you know of yourself more to the fullest extent you can to better yourself for other endeavors. That's part of learning. It's part of learning to live in, on earth, I think. I'm not sure. Still figuring it out. So, um, with that in mind, in a video game, drop a video game and it's okay. Especially nowadays, you can stream games, so it actually, the cost is less, but the time is still something. I.e., I played Cyberpunk for 60 hours. That's a lot for me, people. Open world games usually, for me, last 20 to 30 hours, tops. That's still a lot of time. That's over a day's worth of gameplay. That's enough to know what I'm getting into, and then I'm like, okay, I'm no longer interested. Rainbow Six Siege, Halo Reach, more multiplayer-oriented, or at least more focused games... That's why I like From Software Games and Jedi Fallen Order, because they're open level. Even sometimes those are too expansive and interconnected, but, uh, but I, I can get through a lot more of that. And I have more fun. I need something that's intellectually stimulating, objectively challenging, treats me like the age and maturity I am, and that allows enough reward for what I am putting into it. Holy shit. That's just how I operate in life. I just realized that. Huh. Look at that. It's true to how I live. Um, that's what I need in my life. I need something that is of challenge that I can overcome. That isn't like, well, you have to 
walk on water. What? But um, something that I can pace myself in that has some objectives that I can overcome regardless of the challenges and adversities that may face me that keep me interested and motivated to keep exploring and learning and uh, that reward me for it in whatever way is necessary depending on the circumstance. I don't mean just monetarily. I mean maybe through general pride and uh, happiness. Making albums do that for me. Even if they're grueling, and sometimes it's like playing Elden Ring because I'm getting the shit kicked out of me. Um, it's overcoming objectives. It's overcoming hurdles. It's making something original. So it's putting my imprint. It's making me choose my player agency, right? And it's, you know, regardless of the turmoil, I overcome the objective. And my reward isn't money. I don't get paid that much. But it is that I put out a piece of work that I'm proud of. And that at least some people enjoy. Very similar to a video game. That's just kind of how I operate, I guess. So, of course, video games got to treat me kind of similar to how I like to function in general as a human being. Hmm. Never thought of it like that. So, um, this is a long, long section So this isn't going to be open world cons because I barely talked about those. This is the more personal philosophy. So let me do the next segment on the cons of open world, then the pros, and then we'll do a conclusion. Stick around. Thank you all for sticking with me through that tangent, but I do think that's some pretty important lessons there that I've put together for myself in some way by comparing it to video games, but also just something that... Uh, you know, that I think it could be helpful for people in general and for how you treat open world video games, of course. Um, moving on is okay. Try to be amicable, try to be analytical and truly understand why and if you should move on, explore your options, exhaust all possibilities before you make such a big choice in your life. Be respectful about it and be respectful and mindful of who may be affected by it. And, and don't feel guilty if you've done your due diligence and if you worked hard at trying to be disrespectful, uh, not disrespectful, trying to be respectful. If you put everything on the table to the best of your ability with the knowledge you have gained in your lifetime, right? If you've done everything you've could to what you know best at this current state, it's not the end of the world if, it, if people don't appreciate it or, or, you know, hate you for it. It sucks. It hurts like a son of a bitch because you feel like you did everything right. Um, and even if you did, you've done everything right in your, in your best capability. So everything else is on them. However, if you fuck it up or if you say something out of turn or if you do something messy or if you don't do your due diligence, if you don't really think it out or try your best to be mindful of the situation and consider it, even if you fuck up, that's okay. But if you do that, then... You know, maybe there's more to be desired. I'm not saying regret your choices. Maybe you still made the right choice, but maybe the execution was a little messy. It happens. I have fucked up moving many times. But by the time I moved uh, from North Carolina to California back in 2019, I did it the most efficiently I knew how to at the time by telling the people who I care about most that I'm doing it giving them the time while still actually operating quickly enough to move as fast as my family had to. 
so with the circumstances I was dealt, I actually put it all on the table and did the best I could, regardless of how everyone may have reacted. And that's okay how they react. That's natural. They're going to react the way they're going to react. Just don't do anything that could make their reaction worse or false. False to what they may truly should understand. You know what I mean? Put it all out there. Let them know you've done your work. Best of your ability, right? It's a philosophy. Another philosophy I carry. Anyway, moving from the philosophical, let's get back into the open world game design, right? So the cons of open world game design is pacing and clutter. Work. You know, I said earlier, video games have games in the word. They're most supposed to be fun and enjoyable. And if you don't enjoy it, that's okay. You move on. Sometimes it's just personal preference. But let's just say from an objective standpoint, they're supposed to be enjoyable. And there are some games that just are harder to enjoy, not because they're niche, not because maybe the person doesn't like it, but because the, the way they're designed is flawed. And there's an objective way to look at this. I've already given you the analogy, so let me get into the details. Let's talk about Ubisoft games, or Ubisoft as people like to pronounce. They make some phenomenal games. The track record is pretty stellar in the past 20 years. Maybe 15 years. Um, they've made some of the most beloved games that spawn some of the most beloved franchises. And they've made some of the most beloved sequels to those games. They have a lot under their belt. A lot to be proud of. They have a lot of shit not to be proud of that they need to cut. A lot of copy and pasting. It's weird. It's a weird mixed bag in Ubisoft's catalog. They have a huge catalog, though, so it kind of makes sense. All right, so Assassin's Creed, the first four, five? I like Unity. I don't care what people say. Uh, was that six? Revelations was one, and now we're in Assassin's Creed Origins or Borigins or whatever. Um, I gave up after five. Or after Unity. Pretty much after Unity, I stopped playing them. I'm not saying they're all terrible. I just lost lost my desire to play them. Um, Assassin's Creed. First ones are pretty good. They're open world. They're expansive. You play as Enzio. You're trying to navigate this assassin's code. Being an assassin, following the tasks, doing this cool shit. Parkouring. For a time, from a technological standpoint, there wasn't many games like it, right? So that was one aspect. It was new. There wasn't many open-world games, and even if they were, they weren't as complex as Assassin's Creed. It was fun. It was action-packed. There were things to do. It was so ahead of the time that a lot of its sequels kept that core philosophy and maybe tweaked, fine-tuned, improved it, and continued the story. And it was a good story. It's fascinating. And it allowed different set pieces. That was also really cool. Different time periods. Renaissance era, French Revolution, the American Revolution. Would have killed to see a World War II and Civil War in Assassin's Creed. I just think that would have been so dope. But now we got, uh, what's it, Ancient Rome, Ancient Egypt, and then the uh, Vikings. Those are the three most recent, if I'm not mistaken. Assassin's Creed, the, the uh, starting first four, five, six, whatever, 
pretty much stayed true to their philosophy. Open world exploration, same kind of objectives, a lot of mini markers, but still enough to just kind of explore at your leisure and do what you want to. Though there are times where it got boring and monotonous and I had to put it down, but it wasn't too bad. Not bad as some of the newer ones. Then, in like 2018, it had this fundamental shift in its gameplay mechanics that actually, I'm going to be honest, uh, from the little bit I've played of, of it, and, and I might try it fully now, just as a kind of a review going back and just seeing how it is. Um, it changes mechanics from this one button press, you execute somebody, which always looked really cool and stylish, to actually having fully integrated role-playing mechanics and uh, you know RPG elements and combat systems. Not to say they're great, but they're good, and they're actually... It kind of gave it a fresh punch-up. They didn't just keep doing the same thing. Now, of course... So they implemented, you know, better, more, more intricate storytelling, more cinematics, all that. Um, probably just fine-tune the actual gameplay mechanics, like the movement and, and the attacking, and, and they redefined the combat system. They added weapons you can pick up, and armor pieces that actually change the way you play. They made it a light RPG. Just some light elements of new weapons and armor that you can earn or find. That's good. I think that's okay. Um, of course, it was monetized a little, so that's not fun, but you know, it's okay. Here's the issue. It's done it three times in a row. I don't know if it's actually changed anything since then. That's mine. Um, the issue is with that, the open world expanded. They thought, okay, well, now that we have more, some more enemies and more enemy diversity, basically more combat, uh, and new ways of fighting and new things to find, uh, let's just kick up the world by a bajillion times bigger. I don't get that. They should have kept the world the same size, if not made it a little smaller. An open world is big enough. Just a standard open world. I, I don't know the average size of an open world. I don't know how to measure that, but I know for the most part, the big AAA open world games, the ones that were made in the early 2000s or mid-2000s, 2000, uh, sorry, say like 7, I guess, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 to 2014, 15. Those are plenty big. <laughs> Other than Elden Ring, those are plenty big. Um, the those game those map sizes are jai fucking enormous. You don't need to get bigger. Uh, GTA Five is very very close in scale to what LA County is. I think it's not just downtown LA. It's it's fucking huge. Even to this day, even for a game that's almost ten years old, mind you. Jesus, I'm getting old. <laughs> Not really, but uh, GTA V is almost a decade old. That's wild. Um, Massive. It's huge. I don't think anything really needs to be much bigger than that, other, with, other than a few exceptions. Minecraft. Minecraft is a beautiful example of an open world done right. Here's why. Because it's fucking nothing. <laughs> it's either actually an empty landscape or... It's not actually nothing. Or it's a... You know, it's nature, it's biomes, there's forests, there's deserts. It's, it's a massive, procedurally generated, randomized world. 
quite boring on paper. There's nothing to do. I'm kidding. Uh, there are monsters, right? I mean, everyone knows Minecraft at this point. I don't need to explain it. You got mobs that you got to stay away from at night if you're in survival mode or creative, I guess. Certain options if you choose them. And there are... And then they've been updating it. There are different... I, <laughs> I had the original Minecraft people. I had the Java edition in 2010. So... Um, the one I played the most, though, I played a little bit of that for a while, and then the one I played the most is in 2012 when it came to Xbox 360. I logged a lot of hours into Minecraft, and that's when I learned the game. So I'm a little dated on my Minecraft stuff. I've, I still play it every once in a while. I still have the new one, but I don't play it as much anymore. But anyway, my point is that that game is phenomenal because the way it's designed is to not just... It's not an exploration game, really, other than if you're mining or looking for something very specific, which, so yeah, there's some exploration to it. No, it's a building game. It knows it's a building game, and it allows that. Talk about a sandbox that gives you agency. You can build fucking anything you you want, really. I mean, there's not much that I've, I've you just look up craziest Minecraft creations. Everybody, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, sure, it's blocks. And it's a little pixelated. It doesn't matter. People have figured out how to make it not look that bad when they build something in scale. It's incredible. It's like the Legos of video games. Truly, not like a Lego video game. It's like just build what you want to your heart's content. That's that's awesome. So Minecraft is a rare exception of the open world formula because it actually inverses the formula. It says, uh, fuck it. You're not exploring a world that's built for you. You are building a world that is left for you to play with. You're building the the world may exist, sure. The seed may be there, and you might have some biomes, but you design it the way you want. That's all. It's incredible. Um, so that's a rare exception. No Man's Sky toes that line a little bit. It's mostly exploration, though. No Man's Sky is an interesting one because it involves space, and it's actually a very fun game. I logged a lot of hours in that game, and I did not expect that. After the poor review, I'll get back to Ubisoft in a second, but after the poor reviews of No Man's Sky, uh, initially, I was like, okay. I came to Game Pass, I'm like, yeah, I'll try it. I've heard there have been updates that have improved the game dramatically, and there was. They just added a lot more content, they fleshed it out, they made it more fun. It's actually very fun. I highly recommend No Man's Sky to anyone who likes space uh, things, who wants to simulate space exploration. It's super fun. Like, surprisingly fun. I was playing it for so long, so consistently, being an open-world game that doesn't have a lot of actual direct action that I prefer, usually in a game, I was surprised I kept playing it for as long as I did. And I still love it, and I'll go back to it every once in a while, check it in my world. I have, like, five or six settlements. I found, like, 12 to 15 planets, like, that I, per like, like, it says, Psychic Gamer found this. Like, you, you go to, if you find that planet, you'll see that I found it, which is a really cool mechanic. It's a procedurally generated universe. So it's taking the philosophy of Minecraft and many other procedurally generated things, which basically procedural generation means that a set amount of assets may be handcrafted and designed in general, right? A crap ton for purpose of variety and diversity and all that uh, by the dev devs, but the placements and the usage and the combination of them isn't directly placed by developers. 
especially if they build the enemy types and the models and how they function, and they build the worlds and the planets and the biomes and all that. Someone has to, right? They're the game devs, after all. And then what they do is they put it in a computer program that in real time, as you are rendering the game and traveling to that point, as you're looking at it or as you're flying to it or whatever the case may be, as you're traversing to that region... The, the world that's forming around you is randomized. So from the massive database of assets that they've created that are, are semi-unique and different, it, it generates randomly. And the scale of that procedural generation differs. Sometimes it's just the general area. Sometimes the, the map is the same, like the level layout is the same, but the enemy variants are different or the placement of the enemies are different if there are enemies in it or whatever but it's more randomized which is cool it's actually very cool it allows a fresh do-over i actually think a lot of closed you know smaller games need procedural generation dungeon crawlers are a great example of if things are procedurally generated that keeps it fresh every time you go to that dungeon even if the dungeon's the same but that way it's not the same damn enemy. And most games now incorporate some form of procedural generation, even if it's the enemy placements differ just a little bit. And maybe it throws in a few different enemy types every time you replay that mission. That way you're not doing the same damn thing, because once it gets to that point, you know exactly where each enemy is and how to take them on. Interestingly enough, Elden Ring does not implement this at all. And I'll get to why later um but anyway i'll just say it right now because i'll forget the reason why is because first off every time you hit a side of grace a bonfire a checkpoint if you will saves your game saves what you have you can upgrade and restore all that and it brings your health back up it also respawns every enemy in the area immediately even if you killed them other than the main bosses other than that and some larger bosses i think Actually, I think it's maybe just the main story bosses. I don't remember. But it's only a select few. We're talking like at max only 20 things permanently stay dead in your playthrough. Uh, when you hit that side of grace, everything in that region just is back to life. Same enemies, same placement, same patrol, same difficulty for the most part. Um, now, the thing about these enemies, though, is first of all, they're super fucking difficult to kill. They're also, there's so many of them throughout the world, and they're almost all so unique and different, even if they repeat that the challenges they bring is always fun and unique to tackle. It's not repetitive, and even if it is, it's still engaging because your skill, understanding, the equipment and weapons you have, and the different weapon arcs as well, arts, arcs, uh, and the magic and everything else you can apply is different. And then on top of that, actually, which is very interesting, the, there is, I swear to God, from software coded the enemies where, yeah, they have their traditional movesets that you eventually learn, but two things. First of all, the enemy encounters, they break the normal pacing. So once it's muscle memory, they will still switch it up on you. Even if it's the same what, uh, uh, action, even if it's the same attack thing, a stab, a thrust, a slash, a jump up, a, a pound, whatever. Even if it's the same thing, the pattern and the sequential order of how they do it usually in mid-combat switches. 
and it will kill you because your brain has already figured it out through muscle memory after time. So you're already doing stuff preemptively as if it is how they fight 80% of the time, but that 20% of the time, they switch it up. And then what makes it even more unique is, I swear to God, in almost every enemy, there are two to three more attack movesets that you very rarely see. You will see 5% of the time you encounter that enemy. In fact, in your first playthrough, you may never see it. And it pulls it out, and it will fuck you up and scare the shit out of you because you thought you figured it out. The one of the main bosses towards the end I was fighting with my buddy C's we were fighting it he already beat the boss so we were fighting it in my world so he could help me and which is funny because like I had the game and I taught him how to but I had to start over because I bought it on Xbox so oh, how the students become the teachers anyway I'm just teasing but um no 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 but the, the boss he kind of had down pat I mean not perfectly but he generally knew what was coming I didn't. I was still learning it. I was getting my ass whooped, but I was learning it. And then the boss pulled a move that even I, after about an hour of fighting it in that seas, after probably accumulated a total of two to three hours fighting it, after beating it through his playthrough and then helping me, this boss pulled a move that we both never seen, and it fucking decimated us, and he only did it twice. And then we never saw it again. So anyway, that's just a testament to some of the design choices that they had in that game. But anyway, going back to general open world, you know, No Man's Sky is pretty fun to explore and allows you to do a lot of things similar to Minecraft. Um, so it's an interesting balance. I actually really enjoyed it, though. Highly recommend you check that out. So going in back to Ubisoft, though, I know I'm going off tangents and all kinds of things, but, you know, my mind is actively thinking about this more and more as I get into it. Um... In all seriousness, Ubisoft has this problem where their games get more expansive in size. And the quality may stay the same or decrease or improve, but really it doesn't matter because if it takes so long to understand the quality of the game, it's no longer fun. And the combat mechanics may be better. I can't testify to that. I haven't played enough of it. But my point is there's more shit to do in between. Good God. Ubisoft is one of the most famous for cluttering you with hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds near to the thousands of things to do in the first five seconds of you starting your game. Your HUD is littered with stuff. Now, oftentimes, and thank God for this feature, most of these games have this very simple mechanic where you do not see your objective markers or your tasks or everything that's on your map. Unless, of course, you directly put a, you know, set a waypoint to it. Um, so then it'll kind of float and cut through all of the world so you can see and go in the right direction, which is fine. Um, but a lot of these things don't really pop up, if at all, unless you mark them. They just show up on your map. Or sometimes they're, they're all there, but only when you're in a certain range, within like 50 meters of it. Now that way, you're not seeing literally everything litter the skyline. So that's good. Hallelujah. But the problem is that I even have to mention that as a disclaimer to say, oh, good on them for not fucking that up. That's the problem, people. We uh, There's so much shit to do in an Assassin's Creed game, in a, in a Far Cry game nowadays. I played Far Cry 5. It's actually pretty fun. Some of it. Um, there is an ungodly amount of things to do, and it's not always fun. In fact, it's pointless fodder. 
And the problem is, is you don't always know if it's actually going to be beneficial or fun. Side quests can be fun. They should be fun. In fact, they should, they're designed to be fun. They're designed to be breaks from the main story, but even they can have their own internal story that is just self-contained and is extremely intricate and fun or elaborate. It could reward you with something. It'd be challenging. There's no reason not to have that. A lot of side quests are fetch quests. That's why there's a terminology for it. You talk to this NPC, non-playable character, you talk to this NPC for X amount of time, you get through the dialogue, whatever, even if you find it interesting, great. And then they're like, oh, you can fetch me this, this necklace. Okay? All right, fine, I'll take the fucking necklace. I assume you're going to give me something cool for it. Take the ne- You know, you go and search for the necklace. It's 2,000 fucking meters away for whatever reasons. It's two kilometers away. You got to travel on foot. If you're lucky, you have a horse. If you're lucky, you have a car. It just depends on the game. Hell, if you're really lucky, you have something to fly with, but that's very few and far between. Um, you go there. You get it. Maybe you kill some enemies. You clear a safe house. Or you steal it from someone. You get back, you deliver it. They're so thankful. If it only took you five minutes, okay, not the end of the world. If it was fun combat encounters and if you found a new enemy type, great. If it's none of those things and it took you 10, 20 minutes to do and you get back, then you better pray to fucking God it gives you something for the time you put in there. This guy's either got to give you some information on the story or a new uh, cache, cache, a cache, uh, a cash drop, a fucking a weapon stash, um, a cool, unique item that you couldn't get, or a lot of money, whatever the currency is in-game. Something valuable for the time you just took away from doing whatever you might have wanted to do, thinking that maybe you get something for it and you explore something new. Now, not to say that it couldn't be interesting. Maybe you had a really cool encounter, combat encounter. Maybe you did find something there that he couldn't even give you. Maybe you got a great reward. Not saying that doesn't happen, but oftentimes it doesn't. And that's the problem. It doesn't reward you for your exploration. It makes you do it because there's nothing else to do. Therein lies the problem. Sorry it took me 45 minutes to get there. Longer. Uh, It took me an hour. Um, But that is an issue. It doesn't reward you. And as I said this earlier, if something doesn't reward you to what you're putting in, then don't do it. After a while. Like, it's... Why, why, why would I do that? Why would I do that a hundred more times in different things? Oh, fetch me, oh, give me this, oh, I need this, oh, I get this information from this person. Why? Why do I have to fucking do that? That's boring. I don't want to do that. Why would I want to do that? Unless I'm playing a game called Fetch Quest, and I know going in, that's the entire objective. Why would I want to do that? I'm playing Assassin's Creed. It has the word assassin in it. What do you think I'm here to do? I am not here to find you a fucking necklace. I'm here to kill some bad guys. It's a very simple premise. I am not a smart person, people. (laughs) I'm not an intelligent man. I really just want action in a video game like that. Okay, if it's a dialogue-driven game, if it's a game like 12 Minutes, which I found to be pretty riveting. It's actually so good. It disturbed me, and I didn't want to play it anymore uh, just because it hit home. And I'm like, whoa, 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 this is uncomfortable. I don't like this. i got to play this another time. Um, That was good. There is virtually no action that you take part in. There's no combat. I like that. I like that game. Uh, what's it called? Alone in the Dark, maybe? There's some phone game that's all text-based. Fascinating. Beautifully written. 
Life is Strange. That's a great game. Not particularly my thing that I play on my own, but I sure as hell play with my girlfriend. We have a good time. It's a great story. Uh, my point is that there are plenty of games I play that don't have any action or very minimal to the extent that I like it. Minecraft is actually a perfect example. It's not that much action for me in the way that I like action. No Man's Sky is another one. I have plenty, spent many hours in those games. I like kinetic action, whether it's Rocket League, whether it's Rainbow Six. I'm driven by that in video games. Combat is often the best usage of that. Um, so... So that's okay, but it's just, if it's an Assassin's Creed game, you're, I've played Assassin's Creed, you're supposed to kill people. It's kind of the point. Uh, how you do so is varied, and the frequency of how you do so may be varied, but you still, that's the end goal, you're killing people. Uh, they can make you seem like you're doing the heroic journey, and you may be a hero killing the worst of the worst, but you're still killing people, and that's the goal. It's called Assassin's Creed. Your entire objective is to assassinate people. That's usually the goal. It's like, it's kind of like if Hitman, which is open level, thank God, it's like if Hitman went fully open world and said, oh, okay, well, now you gotta find this thing. Why? Hitman as a game, especially the new ones, really knows what it needs to do. It sets a stage, it allows you a sandbox, it allows multiple choices and interactions in how you pursue to kill and it lets you do it. That's it. It's a very simple loop. It allows a lot of different changes and things to keep it fresh and interesting. It doesn't change the meaning of what you're trying to do. There's so many towers to climb. There's so many random things to find. It literally will mark animals on the map in Assassin's Creed. I am not hunting animals in Assassin's Creed. I get it in Red Dead. Red Dead Redemption makes more sense because it's a little more open. It's just the Wild West. So however you choose to operate in that, if you want to be a hunter or if you want to be a bounty hunter, you can do that. Hell, you could do both. You can kill a bear and you can kill a person in the same day if you choose. It's a little different, so it's more suitable for that. Assassin's Creed, I am not trying to hunt animals in Assassin's Creed. I'm trying to hunt bad guys. Maybe I'm not suited for it anymore. Maybe they've changed their philosophy. And if they have, make it a different game. Don't put it in Assassin's Creed. You see what I'm saying? It's cluttered with data I do not need. Do not tell me where this person is, whom I've never met. I don't need to know that they're there. Let me find them by accident or at, at all. We live in a time of the internet. I get it. Back then in the early 2000s, maybe you did need to spell it out, especially for people who are new to open worlds. Because A, they didn't know to just explore and that it'd be okay. And B, there's not as much availability but I shit you not anytime I was kind of looking for a certain item in Elden Ring I'm a sucker I'm not one of those tryhards that said no never looking anything up everything's got to be fresh no I don't enjoy it that much to do that I wanted to find certain things that I saw was cool whether in a video or whether by somebody I played with but I got to do it on my own volition I looked it up and I'm like oh, I'm gonna go here The clutter in these open world games is bad. It gives me anxiety when I start them. It makes me feel like I have to do these tasks. I don't like that. At all. I will not play games like that. I'm sorry. I just can't anymore. Especially after I've played Elden Ring. Um, the pacing is off. If you're prioritizing story, that's fine. But you just gotta know... 
if that's the main goal, if that's where all the money is in and that's where the best of it is at, know that people may not get to that. And for fuck's sake, we're talking action games. Red Dead, GTA, Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, and a couple others. In the sense of action in an open world setting, do not have the action spread out as far as it is. It's ridiculous. There are bad guys in the game that you have to kill. It's We're not doing a morality test. We know this. So give us them frequently and unique enough variants so every encounter we have is dangerous. There are times where you can have points that you're safe, especially in Red Dead. But for the most part, and maybe in GTA since you're in just general downtown and you are the danger but for the most part if you're playing a game where the world has hostile enemies sniper elite 5 is a perfect example of this done pretty well actually it's not open world so i shouldn't actually put it in this category it's open level so it's completely different but holy fuck are the levels huge uh, they've really outdone themselves they are to the scale of an open world game so it's it's pretty interesting per level uh, so it's kind of interesting um you got the main objective you could do, and then you can expo and you're done. You can explore as much as you want. At the end of the day, there are Nazis everywhere. And there are two things that Sniper Elite knows you want to do. Kill Nazis and see the x-ray cam when you kill them. That's They know that. So they litter the map with Nazis. There is not many points where you can walk in this game, in Sniper Elite 5 specifically, where there isn't a Nazi patrol unit of some kind. And I'm going to tell you right now, they're not all that diverse in their enemy type. There are snipers, there are machine gunners, and then there are the SS captains or generals or whatever, and then there are the infantry fodder. Some of them have different weapons, but here's what makes them cool. They are, first off, they're pretty intelligent. They know how to flank you. They are aggressive. They will fuck you up if you are playing at a moderately reasonable difficulty or a hard difficulty. They don't fuck around. So... You are actually in danger. Like, it's not just where you walk in and you kill them all and you're fine. Because then that also eliminates and has the same problem. They may as well not be there if it's a monotonous button mashing where you just win anyway because you're so powerful. If the odds are like that, there's no suspension of disbelief. There's no uh, external conflict or threat to the well-being of your success. There's no challenge. You need challenge. You need something to overcome. And in a combat action game, in a game that's called Sniper Elite, the purpose is to snipe people. And the precedent was set that you're killing Nazis. So let us kill Nazis without any remorse to it, and let us do it in the fashion that you have presented. A sniper. There are other tools at your disposal, environmental effects. You do have a submachine gun, you do have a pistol. So there are alternate ways you can kill them, and they're just as satisfying. You can melee them, you can... Yeah, but... At the end of the day, the sniping is the most satisfying, it is the most intuitive motion, and it treats it like that. The world is designed so you can snipe at long range. You can flank in close range, but it's designed for long range encounters. I do wish there's more elevated points that are easier to access. That's a huge thing for Sniper Elite that I feel like they have enough, but I feel like for that game specifically, if there are some more hills, mountains, towers... And just something that was a little more elevated so you could actually get in a perch with a clear view of the entire just section and pick off 10, 15 Nazis. That's when I have the most fun. But then there's other modes for that. So my point is that game knows what it wants and it delivers. 
even in a large, I mean, we're talking open world scale, open level. I mean, they're even though they're open levels and every time you finish the mission, you get a new one. Oh my God, they're so big. But they're built in the way with the intention of you snipe and kill Nazis. Uh, that's the objective almost every time. Regardless of the actual objective, blow up this tower, disable this comms. That's boring. I'm sorry. It's boring. I don't care. I don't care. Um, the part where I have to set up charges and blow something up is not fun. In a game where it is rewarding to kill Nazis every time. The x-ray kill cam, the, the setup, the execution, the challenge of killing Nazis is the core fundamental structure of that game. And they have not forgotten that. They could have. It could have been a thing where if they forced an all-stealth mission, that's when you know sometimes a game dev is way out of touch with what the goals are. If it's an all-stealth mission in a game that is not a stealth game. Assassin's Creed. Back to Ubisoft, guys. They do that all the time. There are missions where you cannot be spotted. You have to tail someone. Assassin's Creed is famous for this. They always have those tailing missions, even in the early ones. I'm like, oh, why are you making me do this? And here's the big kicker. They were not optional. They were integral. You had to do them to progress the story. Why? That is just a speed block so people couldn't finish the game quickly or something. Just to bloat the content, I guess. Because I'll be honest, I... Why? I could kill them and take it. Like, I'm an assassin. Why are you making me follow someone? That's not my point. Unless it's Hitman, but that's a different assassin. So, anyway. You see what I'm saying? When you lose idea of the pacing, and this goes with the open world design, where are segments of the map? If it's a huge map, there has to be interlocking segments that, A, from a visual and just fundamental standpoint of environmental uh, understanding, have to make sense geographically. Unless it's a fantasy world, but even then, there has to be some resemblance of it progressing and flowing naturally. And it has to be easily traversable. To the extent of what it is. Fast travel should always be an option. Always. Never cut fast travel in an open world game. If, if a game dev is hearing me right now, if you cut fast travel from an open world game, don't make an open world game. Okay, and don't make it a half-ass fast-ass fast, half-ass fast travel <laughs> that hardly works or that is so takes so long to get to the fast travel point. Make it. We pop up our menu. We can travel to somewhere we've already explored. It's okay if you can't fast travel to everywhere. It's okay that you have to at least explore it once. But once you explore it once, you have to allow people to fast travel to that area. I am not going to drive or take my horse or fly or walk or run 25 kilometers to get to something. I'm not. I am going to uninstall the game. I'm done at that point if you do not allow me to get to that point to finish that objective. That's not fun. That's tedious. A checklist of random shit to do. If I have to talk to 12 NPCs before I can go do something, and the first thing I have to can, can be allowed to do is just grab a necklace, I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. If I'm playing a game that I know prioritizes action combat or something else that isn't that, right? If I'm playing a game from a franchise or if I'm playing a game that has set the precedent that I am here for this reason. If you give me a sword and you tell me my goal is to vanquish an enemy, I'm going to want to do that because I know that's the intention of the game and I know the gameplay is going to be most fun doing that. Talking to somebody isn't going to be as fun. I'm sorry, even if the writing's great. See, outer 
Outer Worlds does a great job because it actually doesn't set the precedent in telling you that killing people is the primary objective. It says that is something you're going to have to do and have fun with, and it teaches you that real quick. But it also has such good writing and such natural flow of story and progression where it, it feels like a journey. It is a story, like The Mandalorian. Like if The Mandalorian was a first-person open-world game, Outer Worlds should be their template on how to progress the pacing of it because it's perfect for that scenario. It's an adventure, and it's definitely fun doing so. So the cons of open-world games are quite vast. So in this next segment, I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to um, talk about the pros and a little more about the cons and not get sidetracked in philosophy. <laughs> Bear with me. Thank you, everybody. Here we go. Next segment. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate you sticking with me. I know this is a very long episode, but um, I really do appreciate it because I've been thinking about open-world game design for a very long time. In fact, I think I have some episodes on it already, but it's a very important thing, and I've been thinking about it more and more as I yearn my de- yearn to play more Elden Ring. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Here's the thing. Um, I'm going to get into what makes a great open-world the pros more so in specific games and the examples and then get back to Elden Ring talk a little more then have a conclusion eventually uh, but some cons of it still hold true right I didn't get to all of them and I wanted to cut that segment because that's a long segment but let me cover a few more cons the, the, it's really just the combination of vast nothingness and mindless tasks that don't progress in any form that's just really it at its simplest form, okay? So what I mean by that is, okay, if, if the objective is to save this person, even if that's just a small objective, okay, say you give me a mission uh, within a region, not the overarching endgame goal. That's not even worrying about that. That's fine. Usually those are well done. I actually don't have a problem with that. But um, the... Let's say we have a mission that progresses a story, and the mission is to save someone who's been kidnapped, okay? Um, Usually some of these gameplay mechanics are fun, and there's something to have fun with, and if the game is combat-focused, like many of the open-world games are, most of them, I'd say, then that's actually pretty fun to try to do. Stealth sneak around a camp that has this girl or guy that's been taken hostage and try to rescue them. Whether you sneak past the guards, or whether you assassinate them, or knock them out, whatever, okay? That's fine. Whether you go in guns blazing or quiet, I think that's perfectly fun. The problem is, how far away is it from when you were given the objective? I hate traveling in open world games. Not because the open world games aren't pretty, and not because I hate traveling in video games, but because they make it boring. Almost like, to a point where I'm like, is this intentional? Why do I have to move so slow? Why is it when I choose the mode of transportation that should be faster, is maybe faster, but not that much faster? Why is the stretches between points so barren? With nothing to look at or do. You know what I mean? Why make it harder for me to get to the objective that you've set forth? 
I get a little traversal. I get driving or, or travel. I get it. I get it. I get traveling to the point. I don't mind that. Make it a little scenic. Maybe have a small encounter there that's optional. That's fine. And sometimes that happens and that's great. But more often than not, it's these ridiculous things. That you get you to travel a bajillion miles and you're like, what the fuck? And if there's no fast travel available, oh my god. I know people might want to kill me over this. Red Dead Redemption 2 has this problem. Now, here's the thing. I understand that Red Dead's philosophy is actually to take things slowly, to soak in the scenery, to take things on horseback, to not always fast travel, so I will give it a break because that is actually their objective. Like, the devs designed it for that. Just because I don't personally prefer that doesn't mean they didn't do what they set out to do. They accomplished that. And the people who do get to soak that in and enjoy it. And I trust me, I played many hours in that game. I did enjoy lots of it. But uh, after a while, I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Because you have to deliver on two fronts. You have to deliver on the traversal of it. It has to be enjoyable or fun enough or understand the philosophy and the intent behind the devs. If it's not quite the way you want it, why is it the way it is? If you understand that, okay, maybe you're more forgiving. And then when you get there, the combat encounter or the actual conflict at hand has to also be fun. Because then, why did you traverse that far if it's not fun? That's something we have to remember when playing video games. Why are we playing this if we're not having fun? goes back to that philosophy of, can we leave it if it's no longer fun? If we don't enjoy it, if we're no longer happy? After a while, after reflection, after a lot of analysis, I think you should be allowed to. I have no hesitation dropping a game as soon as I don't enjoy it. And as soon as I thoroughly figured out why and, and you know... I try to give it its time because sometimes games are slow to start. Sometimes there are mechanics I do not realize till later that help immensely. But oftentimes it's pretty telling. And actually, games shouldn't take that fucking long. Should not take me 20 to 30 hours to then start enjoying it. That's ridiculous. I say 3 to 10 hours maximum. 10 hours is absolute fucking maximum. You cannot stretch someone and drag them along that long without giving them something to consistently enjoy. Usually they do, but there are times where you're like, wow, wait, really? And it's teacher on. People have preferences. I have friends who love Elder Scrolls Online. I, I don't have a direct problem with it. I don't mind people who enjoy it. I'm just telling you right now, I just didn't find it fun. I just, maybe because it's out of date and I played it post Elden Ring, post Cyberpunk, actually. I'll get into that. Post Ghost Recon Wildlands, I'll get into that. Um, but, like, I, I don't know. I just, I don't find it fun. I talked to more NPCs in that game than I talked in the entirety of Elden Ring. Now, Elden Ring understood something. Its story couldn't be the centerpiece, but more so the center thread that kept things tied that's it that's all it was it's a very thin thread that just kept things connected loosely but connected not loosely but yeah um it wasn't its focus it didn't have a bajillion cinematics it had a cinematic per boss per main boss so you knew shit was getting real and it was always beautiful and had a few cinematics and moments especially in the end it was cool it was well paced I would say there's probably a total of three hours worth of cinematics in a game that took me 200 hours to complete. So that's a pretty good ratio to me. I don't mind cinematics in a game. I think Red Dead cinematics are phenomenal. Red Dead 2. Um, absolutely incredible. I think GTA 5 is boring. I'm sorry. The story is good, but it's just like, Jesus Christ. 
to see these dipshits talk more. Um, like after 10 hours, you're like, okay, it's, I get it. I don't know. I just got bored of the story. I, no, I actually liked the story and I actually loved the dialogue and the character arcs. I did. I find, I found the GTA 5 writing phenomenal. Let me rephrase that. I think they overstayed their welcome after a long time into the gameplay and the characters didn't change that much until way later in the game. And you're like, okay. And that was great, but it's just like, wow, why? There was a middle section that was really evolved. Here's a perfect example of a meaningless task that you have to do to progress the story. In GTA V, I don't remember if you remember uh, this, but as uh, Franklin, I believe you had, uh, it was as Franklin, you had to tow your girlfriend's car or steal it out of the tow yard or whatever. But basically, you had to tow a car. Why? Why, why are you making, why are you forcing me to do that? Uh, if it's an option, okay, fine. I don't think you should even... I don't think game devs should even work on shit like that if that doesn't contribute to the main gameplay mechanics, core story, philosophy, or lore. That serves no purpose whatsoever to the game itself. So why did the devs have to go to the trouble to make that mission? Filler, I guess? I don't know. I don't know why they need a filler. The game is big enough. But um, talk about a boring, unintuitive and head-bangingly frustrating mechanic and a mission you had to do to progress Franklin's storyline. Why? I don't get that. Unless I'm missing something and it wasn't required, but I'm pretty sure going off memory it was, and it was god-awful. That was pretty early on in the game, too. And a lot of people tell me, and I experienced this for myself once I beat GTA V, which I did. I, I progressed and beat the main storyline back in, like, 2004. 14 or 15 or whatever. Um, a long time ago now. But people told me, oh, just get... Once you get past, like, the first six hours of the story, it gets way more fun. You don't have to do all this menial shit. What? Okay. Then start with the fun stuff. you got to hook people. Um, so if I... Hopefully I laid out the cons. Um, but open worlds have become a place for filler... And have become a place for item markers and checklists and quest objectives. It's a to-do list of monotony. And it creates apathy to the game. And it takes pacing, tone, and literal time and development time away from the actual gameplay mechanic. The gameplay mechanic of Grand Theft Auto is pretty simple. You shoot. You have a drive. You fuck shit up. It's a pretty simple mechanic. Everything in GTA V should lend itself to doing that. It doesn't. A lot of it does, but not enough. Um, Assassin's Creed. You sneak, you parkour, you assassinate the Templars. Or you are the Templars. No, you assassinate the Templars. Everything else should be... Or assassinate whatever the, the antagonist is. Everything should be revolved around that. And every mechanic, every choice, everything in the game should at least have um, moments where you can do stuff similar to that in microdoses, so you still have fun with the main combat mechanic, with the main gameplay loop. That's what Halo Infinite did right. I will give them credit. In an open world that is kind of boring, 
Like the actual open world design's pretty, but it, there's nothing to do. Except they did know one thing. Halo Infinite really didn't fuck up, and I appreciate them not fucking this up. They could have done some bullshit where you had to go and talk to these people and do this stuff, and sometimes you do. But for the most part, the entire thing about Halo Infinite is all you gotta do is you gotta run around and you gotta kill the Covenant. And other alien forces and whatever else threatens you. You're still Master Chief. You're still whoop-ass powerful. They just give you more space to fuck around and find out. It's not a terrible idea. It's not inherently always fun because there's... It's not quite populated properly. You know how I was saying that the combat... The, the enemy variety and density needs to be there, so there's always some sort of encounter, some sort of threat and conflict, and something engaging to do. The main combat loop of mechan- uh, mechanic of Halo is, Halo Infinite especially, is phenomenal. They did not forget that. They really did keep that in mind. You are constantly killing aliens, and it's good. The few moments you're not, it's not fun. Not engaging. That's why they didn't really need to do open world, but that's okay. So, atmosphere, set design, intricacy of the map, rewarding progression and exploration, and the main storyline, cinematics, and then, of course, the main gameplay loop, mechanic, and goal, and objectives all need to be kept in mind. And that's hard when you're doing an open world game because everything is expanded upon and less connected and less tightly packed together. So it makes it harder to get those things. When it's more focused, it's easier. Call of Duty campaigns are fun. They've never not really been fun other than Vanguard. They haven't, even if they're not good, even if they're not well written, even if they're stupid as shit, they're still somewhat fun because COD knows itself. It knows the formula. It knows how to execute it. And it for sure knows its pacing. It is paced pretty well. It is easy to get through. It's not very challenging. It's pretty mindless fodder at a certain point. And that's where it kind of falls off. That's why Modern Warfare 2019, I think, was pretty cool because some of the diversity, some of the conflicts, the way the story was intertwined, and the changing in paces, scenery, and the complexion of the enemy types and the effects of what you're doing felt more heavy. I really liked that. COD campaign for Modern Warfare 2019 is one of my favorites for that. But open world games lose that often. And it suffers. It makes the game suffer greatly. People will not finish it. They will not play it. Dead Dying Light 2, which came out early February, has gotten good reviews, of course, was squandered by Horizon Forbidden West, and then, of course, all of it was squandered by Elden Ring, which came out the last day of the month, I think. Um, But Dying Light 2 had this controversial post. I didn't buy it. I was going to, and then I didn't. I had this controversial post. It said in its Twitter page or whatever, on its Instagram, 500 hours to complete Dying Light 2. People lost their fucking mind. You know why? Because no one wants to be told it takes them 500 hours and $60 to finish a fucking game. Especially if A, they have a life, and B, they want to play other games. Because, believe it or not, people want to finish the games. People want to play them. That's why we're talking about it. It's why I'm talking about it. I want to play these games. I want to explore them. I want to love them. I want to get through the story, and I want to have a good time. 
guys, there's, there are things in video games that will make you feel things you didn't know you could through other art forms. Like, I'm not going to say it's always holy or euphoric, but finishing Elden Ring, even though I only did one playthrough, I'm about to start Journey 2, New Game Plus, the first time. Don't get mad at me. I had a huge delay. Um, when I finished it, I was so proud. I was so happy. I felt so accomplished. I really was. I finished one of the biggest games I've ever played. One of the hardest games I've ever played. One of the most intricate games I've ever played. I loved it, and I finished it. And I saw the end credits. There is something to that. There is value placed in that. And I'll get into that in a minute. But here's the thing. I haven't seen the end credits of most of these other games I've played. Red Dead 2, GTA 5, because the story was so goddamn interesting, but I'll be honest with you, after the first act, I stopped doing all the side stuff. All the stuff they filled their world with. Some of it was interesting. I stopped doing it. I didn't care. I wanted to just get through the story because I knew the story was good, and I knew I should at least give it that respect. And I pushed through. That's not how you should play a game. You should want to push through. You should want to explore. You should want to finish it in an open-world environment. So those are some of the cons. Those are some of the downsides to poor open-world design. I've talked negatively enough. Let's get into the pros, the positives. I'm going to give you three games, for example. I know this is a long episode. It'll probably go longer, but I'm trying to not make it brutally long. I'm trying to keep it under three hours. So I'm going to cut this. I'm going to start the pro segment. Three main games. Here we go. Thank you all once again for sticking with me. I know this is a long one. I thought about maybe cutting that 40-minute con segment, but to be honest, it's interlaced with so many other things and philosophies. I, I don't want to cut anything here because it's all meaningful and it's all you know, flow of thought. Stream of consciousness. Here we go. The pros of open-world games. The moment you've all been waiting for, hopefully. Um, I'm going to give you three games that are stellar examples, in my opinion, of a well-made open-world game that vary in actually that are from or follow philosophies of games that don't work as well, to my opinion. Right? I, I talked about Red Dead, I talked about GTA, I talked about the Assassin's Creed, I talked about Far Cry, Ubisoft games, and, and plenty more. So many more I don't even have time to mention. Whether the open world didn't work because it took away from the main story. Fallout's an example. Uh, Fallout 4, I guess. Uh, whether it takes away from main story. Whether it forgets its main progress and loop. Whether it um, does something that's counterintuitive to what it sets up in the beginning of the game. Uh, eh, you know, a lot of things. Uh, there's a lot of things that could take away from an open world loop that is enjoyable and fun. Um, those are some of them. Oftentimes, as you can tell, it's when I mention, excuse me, it's when I mention the fact that a lot of it feels like they lost their goals, their pacing, their intention, their focus. It's going to happen a little bit. It's going to get frayed. It's going to get a little stretched. That's okay. But losing it completely and kind of losing the inclination to keep on pushing it 
that's that's when it gets weird for me. But on the flip side, there are some games that do a good job in open world design, regardless of their previous general history. So, um, I'm thinking. Let's see. So let's start with one that might shock you all. One that I loved and somehow, some God's gracious miracle, I finished this game. And I believe most people should play it because it's actually really good. Ghost Recon Wildlands. Not Breakpoint. Not whatever the hell else they're making now. 2018's Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Wildlands by Ubisoft. It is a phenomenal game. It's not perfect. By no means is it perfect. In fact, there's a lot of fucking flaws with it. A lot of issues. But, that being said, it's actually pretty well paced because they got the idea down. They knew what they kind of needed to do. It's a combat tactical game. They allowed a lot of weapons, a lot of exploration, four-player drop-in, drop-out co-op. They allowed fluid movement of vehicles, for the most part. Vehicles were a little clumsy, but not terrible. And of your physical body, and moving your character was great. Shooting and combat mechanics were phenomenally fun. Enemy types were varied enough, but consistent. There are enemies everywhere, and there are different types of enemies and factions. All that was well and good. It's a huge map. Might be one of the biggest open worlds I've ever seen. It's up there. It's massive. It's baffling. It is overwhelming. It does have the traditional Ubisoft markers. But here's the thing. It didn't lose sight. It was the first Ghost Recon game to go open world, which I don't actually think is a great idea for Ghost Recon, but it worked for Wildlands specifically. Because they structured it in a way where each region of the open world was self-contained. And it had four main objectives. And it stayed true to the philosophy of Ghost Recon, being a tactical shooter. Killing people, once again. I know, I sound fuck up. When, I sound really fucked up when I say all this, right? But I, I, I do mean that, like, you're a soldier. You're to say, you're, your entire goal is to dismantle this cartel that's taken over this fictional place, which is basically Brazil. Or Bolivia, I guess. Not quite sure. Kind of toes the line between both. Takes inspiration from both. But, um... But, that's it. El Sueño, I think, is the name of the big bad honcho that you gotta kill. Here's the thing. You could kill him immediately. but well, almost immediately. You can kill him after, like, you kill the first main mini-boss. So, like... Two... To three hours in, you you could kill him. The main guy. Of course, you still have a lot of the game to explore and play, so there's not really a point in doing that, and it's going to be difficult. But that's cool. That tells you right off the bat the philosophy of the game dev saying, yeah, do what you want when you want, but just know you're going to get fucked if you don't do it quite the way we're trying to lay it out for you. You don't have to do it the way we say, but try to at least follow a little bit, you know? <laughs> Here's the thing, okay. 
Um, so, so you had three or four mini-bosses within each region. There's a shit ton of regions, and you just have to kill them. That's it. There are other missions, but there are no fetch quests, really. There's no talking NPCs that make you go and catch something or grab something. It's always about dismantling bad guys or liberating a camp to free people. That's it. Those are the two things. Now, where it suffers is the traversal. There wasn't a lot of intent in it actually being open world. It was structured well, but it didn't really need to be. And that's usually a flaw in an open world game. I just think it was okay the way they executed it at the end of the day because the gameplay was so fun and the tools. The best part about exploring the open world, once again, most things were laid out, but it wasn't perfectly spelled out. The main regions were a little shown a little bit, but not everything was shown in that region until you got far enough. So that was cool. A little uh, exploration in, incentive. And then the bigger thing is unique weapons. I mean, you wanted better weapons and upgrades to those weapons and skill points to find around the world. You didn't just get skill points from playing the game. You did. You did get skill points from playing and, and doing well. You got currencies that allowed you to upgrade stuff, and that's great. But you also got skill points from finding them. Didn't have you... You could collect collectibles, you could find stuff, but almost everything rewarded you for it directly into your progression as a character. You got better weapons, you got better guns, you got to kill more enemies efficiently. Enemies weren't the most diverse, the combat wasn't the most complex, but it sure was a little more complex than just point and click and shoot. There was bullet drop. Shooting someone from a thousand meters away with a sniper rifle into a police camp where they can't find you, into like a military camp, was dope. Metal Gear Solid Five, actually, Phantom Pain actually had a lot of similarities. Well, Ghost Recon had a lot of similarities to it, I should say. It was done pretty well, pretty exceptionally. It was very fun. It wasn't too overwhelming in the objectives. Uh, very well made. So that's another standout one. Very sandboxy. So anyway, I really like Ghost Recon. I actually beat it. I it took me a long time, two or three years, slowly chipping away at it. I'm not going to say it's the most fun. It's not nearly as good as the next two I'm going to mention. It's open world design, but it is very good for a Ubisoft game. And I think if you're going to do a Ubisoft game of that scale, Assassin's Creed needs to follow that philosophy exactly. That's, like, key. To have regions of enemies. So, in this region, it's a big one, it's a big region. You can explore it. You can find some weapons, find some save points, find some fast travel points. That's fine. But really, just going point A to point B to liberate camps, kill baddies in the most coolest way, play around with new weapons. And that's fun. That's actually really fun. That's not to be for t taken for granted. The shooting, tactical maneuver, and combat mechanics is the meat and potatoes of the game. That's what you want to be spending your time with 80% of the time. And that's what you do. 80% of the time, you are killing bad guys. 10% of the time you're traversing, the other 10% of the time you're exploring. It really knew its balance. Depending on your own volition, I guess. You could just go off and explore. But it didn't actually have that much interactable things. It was a little older game, so maybe it just didn't have the build for it. But also, it knew better. It's focusing on you getting better weapons to kill harder enemies over time. It's a combat tactical shooter. It knew that. It stayed true to that. Uh, I think Breakpoint actually held to that formula a little bit, but it had other issues. Breakpoint, Ghost Recon Breakpoint, the sequel to Wildlands, became more of a RPG, followed more in Division, where you were finding really rare weapons. Whereas 
Ghost Recon, you're finding weapons. None of them were different other than the... You do get legendary weapons from killing the mini-bosses, so you do get a unique reward from them, a special gun that has special abilities that no other gun can have in the game, so that's cool. That was rewarding for you to kill a mini-boss for, to go to the trouble to get a unique gun that you may use. Um, but there was no other thing warranting a gun from another. There wasn't an epic sniper rifle that was better than an epic submachine gun. It wasn't Warzone, it wasn't Fortnite, it didn't have that. No purple, blue, green tiers, it wasn't Division. It didn't need that, it just said, here's a gun, if you want to snipe people, here's the specs. You want long range with high ballistic damage, use that bolt action. You want a medium to long range with faster fire rate, use that semi-auto. You want a rifle? I have a marksman rifle equipped. I still play Ghost Recon Wildlands every once in a while. It's dope. I have this marksman rifle that switches between four time to one dot scope. It's silenced. It is one tap. And I can I can hit up to I can hit up to two hundred meters away with it if I really wanted to. It's my primary though. You get three weapons, and my secondary is a is either an LMG 150 clip legendary LMG I got from a mini boss. It's really dope. Allows me to mow down enemies, allows me to take out vehicles, allows me to hold down the line. If I'm, so if I'm going stealth and doing single shots, I use that marksman rifle, which is super fun. And then if I have to go loud, I switch the LMG. That's it. And then in special circumstances where I know I'm sniping from far distances, I equip my, uh, my go-to bolt action. And I can pop them from... I think the longest shot I got was two kilometers, and it took like five seconds for the bullet drop to reach. It was phenomenal. They actually have really good sniping mechanics in that game. Underrated. Ghost Recon Islands is super fun as well because it's co-op. It's fully integrated co-op, shared world, drop-in, drop-out, four-player co-op. Definitely a great game. And I really hope to see as we see Ubisoft games coming to Game Pass. I pray to God we get Ghost Recon Wildlands at the very least. I'm willing to try Breakpoint. I've heard they've improved it, made it a little more like Wildlands. So if that's the case, I'll give it a shot. But man, 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 Break, uh, Wildlands is the is great Okay, so the next game. This is going to be controversial. Don't hate me, okay? Actually, you can hate me all you want. I don't give a fuck. Uh, Cyberpunk 2077. This one's going to ruffle feathers. Hear me out. First off, I waited on this game for fucking forever and was definitely excited for it. Too excited. Here's the thing for me. Here's, here's the disclaimer. I understand the bugs were horrendous in the opening launch. I got it opening day. Don't. You know, trust me. I, I've, I saw some bugs. I had one hard crash. That's it. My entire time of playing, I had one or two, maybe, hard crashes, occasional bugs. I was playing on the One X, so I think I was fortunate enough to skip the stuff and be leaning more towards the PC folks. So I really got to avoid all the bugs and technical issues, but I'm not forgiving them for that. I think that's horrendous, and I think they should have kept the game in the oven for another year, really polished, perfected it, made it good for all game, because the game is phenomenal. It's just a goddamn shame that it was broken, buggy, and a fucking scam for so many people so i'm not defending that at all but what i will say and i've said this in my first impressions on cyberpunk i played about a total of 60 hours of the game i i think i oh yeah i beat the story yeah i beat the main story i did i'm like that beat it yeah i did I didn't fully explore it the way I wanted to. I didn't get to every nook and cranny. I didn't fully upgrade my guy. I wanted to play more, and I had so much fun. I was going to do a re-roll and do a new build. That's how good it is. Under all the technical kerfuffles, um, it's actually a pretty great game. 
in its design. It's an RPG first with some great shooting mechanics at times. It shoots more competently than a Fallout game, so that's good. It's not like a Call of Duty, though. I wish it was. <laughs> I wish it shot like Call of Duty. I wish the combat was as good, but it's not. That's okay. Sometimes when you have shooter RPGs, you gotta prioritize one over the other. At least, even though they prioritized RPG, they did make the shooting very viable and, and still fun. There's enough augments, abilities, and ways to respec and build and upgrade yourself that is so fun and so unique to play around with. The world is incredibly designed. Not everything's interactable, but my god, a lot is, and it is diverse. It's huge, but it's not actually too big. It's a big world. It's not nearly as big. I mean, we're talking that at some points in certain waypoints in Ghost Recon Wildlands, it was 25 kilometers away, which in general is a very, very, very far distance. But it was there's some that's even more. I think there's one that's 47 kilometers away. But... Uh, you know, um, I guess considering I could take a sniper shot from up to two kilometers away from a mountaintop, that's not too bad. The vehicles and traversal mechanics and the fast, there were so many fast travel points, it made it doable. So at any point in Ghost Recon Wildlands, even though something was 20, 30 kilometers away, I didn't actually have to travel that far. I just fast traveled to that point. And you could fast travel the points before you even had to discover them. Thank God. As soon as you unlock that region, at least one or two fast travel points were unlocked in that region. So if you unlocked a region for killing a boss that unlocked a separate region, and you were still 15 kilometers away, you didn't have to travel that far. And even if you had to travel like five, six, eight kilometers, I think that's the most I ever had to do on average, it was pretty quick. It took like a minute. There's nothing telling anyone saying when you're traveling that far, you have to travel at the rate you would in real life. The distance could measure that many kilometers for the sake of the game, but then in reality, your car, your vehicle, your horse could travel faster to close that distance. It just depends on how the game's built. Cyberpunk followed this philosophy beautifully. Here's two things it did. First off, the open world, in terms of its story and pacing, was phenomenal. It had a great prologue. It kicked you right in the story, and the story stuck with you the entire time, at least for me. First off, the dialogue was really good, in my opinion. And the general story and plot threads weren't complex, but complex enough, but easy and also simple enough to follow. And it was engaging. It was fun. I enjoyed taking part in the story. Can't say that on most open world games, to be honest with you. Even Red Dead 2, as interesting as it was for the first act, it lost me. The pacing of Cyberpunk's story is one of the best I've seen in an open world game, and here's why. It's because it designed its story with the idea that if you mainline the story, you beat the game in 20 hours or less, depending on how good you are at the game. They wanted that to be there, and they wanted the story missions to still always remind you to pop up to be frequent, not annoying, but frequent. And, and the story was well-written, well-acted, good motion capture, all of that. It was still well-done, and so interesting to the world and the lore, in my opinion, that it was always engaging. And I always wanted to progress it, even if I wanted to take a detour or do some stuff first. Also, the prioritization of the detours. There's no fetch quests. Well, there's a few, but it wasn't really that bad. There's a couple that were tedious. 
Of course, those are your own choice. No main story really made you do too much bullshit. There was some bullshit, but not really enough to really make a huge fuss over it. Just eh, some stuff here and there. But really, it was pretty focused. The side quests as well need a mention. The side quests, the way the written, structured, designed, and played were sometimes better than the main story quests, which is very rare to see, and sometimes the best part. There was investigations. There was huge combat scenarios. There was suspenseful horror moments. It was varied. It had its own self-contained story that was beautifully written. Heartbreaking sometimes, just intricate as hell. And sometimes led to the main story, or at least just added to Night City. To the location. The location, the atmosphere, was its own character. The character of Night City held its own throughout and reminded you every time you booted up the game and every time you were playing it, you were there. It also was phenomenal in its execution of visuals. It looked pretty. It had dynamic um, events. There were characters on every block. And they were not boring. I I was thoroughly impressed through my entire playtime just how fascinating everyone was. From their looks, from their behaviors, from the way they interacted, even if they had nothing to do with anything. And then, of course, the main enemies. Those were always interesting in the ways you could get new guns, upgrade yourself. There was a lot of progression. Exploration was rewarded. You got some cool items that were hidden. Some of the I got some of the dopest legendary mantis blades that I still have with me. In my first two hours of exploration, I looked it up. I looked up. I watched a Game Ranks video on cool stuff you can find. But that that was there. So Cyberpunk did a phenomenal job. For me. For all of that. You could summon your car at any point, which was great. Almost anywhere. There are some story missions, of course, you weren't allowed to. But for the most part. And also, driving was pretty fun. Every nook and cranny was fun to explore if you chose to. You didn't have to, though. There's nothing required to do, so it was up to exploration. There was a, The map was busy. The HUD could get busy, but it wasn't too cluttered. It was cluttered. It was more cluttered than I prefer, but it wasn't too cluttered. And I do remember there wasn't actually that many checklists. It wasn't like a Bethesda game or a Ubisoft game. There were some checklists, but it wasn't really too many. How I remember this, I had to write down the builds and the things I wanted to look for. I liked that. So it wasn't the full minimalist approach. So Ghost Recon Wildlands didn't follow that minimalist approach. It was cluttered, but it also allowed you... It also knew what it wanted, so its focal point was okay. So when it was cluttered, it was really, truly optional. And sometimes it was fun to do those options. Cyberpunk took it a little further and minimized it a little bit. Didn't have as much clutter. Still cluttered. Still a lot on the minimap. Still shit to do, but not as overwhelming to me, at least. The traversal was much easier. You could fast travel, but you could also just drive somewhere really quickly. Like, I was like, this doesn't seem right. This was like 800 meters away, and I got there in 30 seconds. That was it's a past-ass car I have. And then every crevice of the world was interesting to look at and fun to explore because there was an encounter. There is an NPC saying some interesting shit you've never heard something say in a game. There is an enemy type that you've never seen, and you're like, oh, I wonder... Can I fight this fucking thing? You know? Like, it was was fascinating. It was really a wild ride. It was an adventure, for sure. And the story was great. It stuck with me, and and it kept me going. And I cared. I cared about the characters. I actually genuinely cared about the outcome of the story. That's hard in an open world to keep that pacing. Cyberpunk did all of that. 
They also had incredibly intricate RPG mechanics for those who wanted to sink their teeth in that, and they had really fun combat mechanics. So all in all, as a full package, Cyberpunk is a phenomenal game. If it didn't have those bug fix technical issues and those bugs, if it gave it one more year to polish it, really make it punchy, and maybe do a few more tests, make sure everything is up to code, oh my god, would have been considered one of the best games of the decade, and it would have kicked off 2020 as game years phenomenally. So yeah, Cyberpunk is actually a great game under the surface. I actually only stopped playing it because I got my Oculus at the time. And that was so immersive that going back to Cyberpunk felt so sluggish. <laughs> so no fault to Cyberpunk. Just my own uh, curiosity. I did beat the story though, so I, I'm proud to say I finished that. About 60, 70 hours in Cyberpunk. That At that time, guys, that's probably one of the most longest amounts of time I spent in an open world game that I could remember consistently in the course of a month and a half, two months. And then we get into Elden Ring. I've already talked about this enough. So you know what I'm going to say. It took the minimalist approach to a new level. I know Breath of the Wild, uh, Legend, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild did it first, but I didn't play it that, so. I don't own it, I know, I'm terrible. I have a Switch, I didn't own it. It actually, the Switch came out the day before my birthday too, isn't that wild? I, I didn't get it then, I got it a year later. So, I just, I wanted to, I just couldn't afford it. And also, um, I just wasn't going to play it as much as I was playing my Xbox at the time. And I still don't. I Like, I have my Switch. I love my Switch. I, but, eh, I don't play it as much. Um, Super Mario Odyssey also has a great open world, but it's a little different. Um, and I'm not good at platforming. As good at platforming. I've played a little bit of Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild at friends' places. Not enough to make an informed decision, just from what I've learned, what I've read, and a little bit of my gameplay experience. I see what everyone's getting at, and I know exactly what it's doing, and I know Elden Ring followed that philosophy. They actually took inspiration from that game. So I'm just giving props where props are due for those who are fans of those games so they don't lose their mind and say, oh, Elden Ring didn't do a fan Yeah, whatever, but Elden Ring did a great job at it. So here we go. Elden Ring's open world is huge. The lands between is massive. I don't think it's the biggest open world I've ever played, but it sure as shit isn't the smallest. It is massive. It's very good, too. Um, here's what makes it stand out. <laughs> There's, like, not that many side quests, believe it or not. There's no check marks, there's no boxes, there's no to-do lists. There are no icons on the map except two things. It's a topographical map, so when you look at the map of Elden Ring, it actually looks like if you had an old-time map, right? Uh, it's a topographical map, so the information on there is the elevation points, which isn't clearly defined, so you are going to fucking die thinking you're on a flat plain and you're actually on a cliff. So, you've been warned. <laughs> First of all, you get map fragments as soon as you enter a new region. So your map, when you open it, isn't instantly shown everything. In fact, it's grayed out. Now, there are two phases to unlocking more of your map, which people, I'm, 
I don't think many people realize or talk about this. When you start the game in Elden Ring, you do a little thing, you see a cinematic, you have to do a little thing where you're confined, and then as soon as you, in the first 15 minutes, really, like, you just get a feel of the mechanics and the movement. It's a brief tutorial, and it's helpful. You have to do it. You get through it, you get outside. Gorgeous. See this beautiful Erd tree, and you're in, uh, I almost said Lurnia. That's not where you're at. Is that is that where? No, that's a lake. Area. Ah, whatever. You're in uh, the opening region. Jesus, I forget. The Cave of Knowledge. You leave the Cave of Knowledge. Limgrave. You're in Limgrave. My bad. Um, so you see this beautiful earth tree. There's color. There's a little bit of color. You can tell this world is died. Well, you watch the opening cinematic. You kind of get the gist of the story and the lore and the atmosphere. But you you could tell this world is dead, but still shimmers of its past is there it's beautiful the beauty surrounded by the darkness is the theory and it's shown that throughout the entire course of the game multiple times in very interesting ways it's a painting people you jump in that game it's not photorealistic to a degree it can be it's very it's graphically impressive but it's not the most graphically impressive what it does do, though, unlike Cyberpunk, unlike Ghost Recon Wildlands, which steps more in the realism, this is more surrealism in terms of you are looking at a painting. In fact, you find paintings of the world, and you're like, oh, wow, that looks like the backdrop of the world. It's like a set painting. It's beautiful. It's vast, and it's intricate. The map opens up to you in different ways. So first off, you have this map. It's just a big old brown thing of the very small area you're in. And it's not just a brown thing. It's covered in gray clouds. You can't see shit. Other than a little road. So in the brown, before it's filled out with all the topographical information, the green, the patches of this, the trees, the, all the actual data, it's, it's this whole gray cloud mist where you can't see dick. You actually have to travel through that cloud of mist in the map. It's on a road. As soon as you do, that instantly opens up your map to brown. It's not filled in. It just shows main roads, which is kind of cool. It just shows the main roads, and it shows a little little golden divot. It's so hard to see, it's almost imperceptible. And that little golden divot is a map fragment. And quite frankly, you can't miss them, though I have. It's sad. They're not designed to be hidden. They are designed to be found, but they're not hard to find, as soon as you enter a new region where it says you have entered this place, there's a map fragment on the main road that you are entering in on. It, it's almost impossible to miss it. And it's this large purple light. Not large. It's a thin purple light shooting up. So unless you have something perfectly obscuring your vision, you'll see it. You'll go up, you'll pick it up, and it opens up that fragment. It gets rid of the brown in the main road, and it shows the entirety of that region from a topographical map. That immediately signifies how much exploration is key. So once you, throughout the game, you get enough of the map and you get an idea of how it works. But once you get all the map fragments, there's also teleportation points you can fast travel, or you can accidentally travel to spots you haven't found yet. And every time you get to a site of grace, which is like their bonfire, you save, you can upgrade, you can, it unlocks, that site of grace is also a fast travel point. 
you do not have to go to a site of grace to fast travel. Let me repeat that. You do not have to go to a site of grace to fast travel. There are so many games that you have to go to a fast travel area or station to fast travel to another area or station. Sure, it's still faster than, like, actually traveling the real distance, but it's another step. It's a tedious, monotonous, stupid step. If you're already going to fast travel, why make someone traditionally travel to that point? Elden Ring said, fuck all that. Open up your map. As soon as you have had that site of grace, and you'll get plenty, you just click on that from your map. Doesn't matter where you are, as long as you're not in combat, and as long as you're not in a cave, you can fast travel. Of course, you know, and that includes fighting main bosses. Like, you can't fast travel while fighting main boss. If you're in combat, you can't fast travel. You have to be out of combat. You have to vanquish your enemy, or you have to be in safety. So 99% of the time, you're, when you're traveling, you're not in combat. So, well, 95% of the time. Things will try to kill you as you travel, but if you get far enough away, they won't anymore. Traversal. They got the fast travel down. Okay, great. I'll get more into why they also... Uh, this isn't the only reason. This is just starting it off. Another key element. Similar to Cyberpunk. And a couple other games. You don't have to just travel on foot. Now, actually, traveling on foot, sprinting and walking, is surprisingly quick. Like, not desirable at all. Like, you will have to fast travel and take your steed. It's that big of a map. But to be honest with you, if you're just traveling in small areas from point A to point B, very small sections, perfectly fine. And there's three elements to why that's okay. First off, it's fun and easy to maneuver your character. Two, there is... Everything you look at is beautiful. It is a painting. Even if you've seen it a million times, it's still pretty and it's intricate. And then lastly, there's always something unique in areas that suggest you explore. Sometimes you fuck up and you think you're exploring something cool and it's just a dead end. Very rarely, though. Um, everything that From Software understands how gamers think. Everything that naturally divots, points, curves, guides, lights, or structurally seems like some hidden door or some intricate pathway or some vast area vista of something almost i'd say 85 to 90 percent of the time when you think you want to explore something because it looks unique because something catches your eye because something seems like there could be something cool over there there is something it may not be the coolest thing you want but there's two things that happen one or three it's beautiful to look at there is a combat encounter of an enemy, and they're almost all the enemies are unique in it. They're, they all are, even as even the annoying ones. Even if they repeat, they're unique in their look and their design. They operate and mechanically fuck you up in interesting and challenging ways. And there's almost always something there as a reward. It's not always great. Sometimes it's something you don't actually need anymore. It's pretty phenomenal. Another thing. That's quite incredible. Sorry, I got distracted. I'm looking at some weird shadow outside my room. It's wild. 
Another incredible thing is the uh, steed, your spectral steed, Torrent. This little buddy, after probably 45 minutes of playtime, you unlock him. He could be summoned at any point, even when you're in combat, I think. He's a little delayed in combat, but uh, unless, of course, unless you're in a cave, or unless you're in a main boss area, or a certain enemy type that doesn't allow you to summon him, but for almost every traversal option, you can summon him. And what he does is two things. First off, he moves hella quick. He is so much faster than on foot. Also, he jumps, double jumps. So he can reach areas that you couldn't reach on foot. You just can't. And if you need to get there and get a set of grace, you have to use him. But he's fun. He's, as soon as you are done with him and you like click to get off him, he disappears and you can resummon him at any point. It's not like some clumsy horse you have to whistle for and wait. Red dead. He can die, he can get hurt, and then it just takes him a while to respawn, but then he's fine. You don't have to, like, buy him back or anything. You don't have to use a magical reviving potion. And you can also use mounted combat with him. You can hit, swing, jump. You can fight on him. It's tricky. It's not easy. It's not clumsy at all. It's actually pretty intuitive. It's just very hard to get a handle of, but it's doable. You could also pick things up on him. I can't tell you how many video games and open world games like Red Dead and, and or, uh, the Horizon Zero series and all these other things. Um, or not Zero, Horizon Zero Dawn, Horizon Forbidden West, right? So the Horizon series. Um, I can't tell you how many games like that in general where when you go to pick up an item, it is slow. You, it's a whole three-second animation. Every time you can't skip it. There's no way to speed it up. When you're skinning an animal, when you're picking up berries, when you're picking up flowers, it shows it every time. Why do they do that? I get it once in a while for a cinematic purpose, but like, why do they do it every single time? And if they're going to do it, why not make it skippable? I know it's only three seconds, but every time, if you have to pick up 20 flowers, it's going to take a while. It's not fun. Elden Ring said fuck all that. You do have to pick up flowers at times. You do have to pick up stuff. Not a lot. It's actually not required at all unless you want to do multiplayer. Then you do have to pick up early flowers. They're fucking everywhere. It's easy to pick up. It's not the end of the world. It's just a pain. Um, as soon as you run around and you press the collect button, whatever that may be for you, for me it's why. As soon as I press that, it's instant. It's in my inventory. Nothing to worry about. There's no animation, no bullshit like that. Um, okay, and then with the pacing of... Um, what else? There's some other stuff that actually just expedites the open world. Conundrums. Yeah, your spectral whistle, you can pick up stuff instantly, which is just godsend. Um, you move pretty quick, you can traverse pretty quickly in general. Fast travel with Sights of Grace. Everything's a painting. There are combat scenarios everywhere. And, and that's, that's the crux of it, people. It makes you want to explore. There's no clutter. There's no icons on the map is the other big thing. Absolutely nothing except 
the merchants, so you just know where they are. And originally there wasn't. There was a patch that added that, which is actually helpful. Just the general location of the merchants and your sites of grace, places you can fast travel to. That's it. And, you know, the general region, but it doesn't give you anything. There's no, this is a bird to catch. This is a chest, loot box, an item. Here's a sword over here. If you want that data, you go to a companion app. That'll show you it. And I do. I have a companion app, and I use it for two reasons. It keeps track of, it, well, first playthrough. I don't need it now, I guess. It kept track for me of who all the bosses I killed, so I could just keep general log of how much progress I've made. And it keeps, it tells me where things are. Not, I don't have it open when I play the game. I only go to that app if I'm specifically looking for something. There are items I wanted to find on my own volition. And I'm sorry, it's such a big world. I don't got time to just walk around and stumble around. Oh, it's somewhere in Khalid. Well, Khalid's fucking huge. And people think, things there, it's literally hell on Earth. So, no, I don't want to just die over and over just trying to find something. Because some of these things are tucked away in a cave in the pocket of a corner of the stump of a tree. I mean, they tuck things away in really weird spots. But, somehow, naturally, your brain just like, oh, seems like something would be there. And usually, there is. It rewards you for your exploration. It does not tell you to go do that. Everything I have done in Elden Ring, except one or two things, I had I did because I wanted to. Everything. There's no other game, really, or open world game, at least, that I could say that. There's three instances in the open in Elden Ring where I did something I just didn't really want to do, but kind of had to. And usually it's because it was repetition because I already did it in my PC build and I had to do it very quickly in my Xbox build again. Here are the things. I had to collect those stupid five-finger invasion thing and do the, just do the little stupid side quest just so I can unlock the thing so I can summon... Um, what was that even for? Oh, so I can get the... So I can get to the mog... To the... Um, underground to Mog's dynasty place so I could get that dope uh, room farming spot quickly. It was tedious. It's not the end of the world. It's actually not a bad thing to do. It's just doing it twice very recently was just not fun. And for some reason, when I went into the capital, the rampart and stuff, where you fight bunch of different bosses eventually um i did not like that area i thought it was pretty first time through it was kind of cool other than that after that i was like ah it's not fun to traverse here's why because it was the only area in the entirety of Elden ring i think i've explored every area maybe not to its fullest but i've explored every general area it's one of the only areas other than a handful of caves which naturally is going to get confusing where i got fucking lost very quickly doesn't matter how many times I pulled up my map. The map is helpful, but not that helpful. Uh, that's okay, usually because everything is so unique and there's enough landmarks and there's enough things where you figure it out eventually. You learn it. I've actually learned the game. Like, I know what routes to take to get somewhere. That's how much time I've spent. I know it. Like, I don't actually need to look at a map to get somewhere now, really. I still do, but I don't really need to for certain things. Here's the thing, though. Oh, my God. The capital rampart, the capital, whatever it's called, uh, in the Altus Plateau. Oh, fucking hey, dude. 
it's a pretty place, but oh god, the inner city of it is so weirdly complex. It's beautifully designed. There are some great enemies. Terribly annoying, but very good enemy design. And good rewards. I just get confused as shit when I'm on the main street of that. I, I, I'm just, just like, I'm, where am I? Why am I here? Once I finally figured out how to scale up the dead dragon to get to the actual spot where the bosses are, I was happy. I spent three hours in that spot looking for a place to get out of the fucking city naturally so I can get to the main boss because I knew there was a main boss there. And I had to get there because I wanted to get to the frozen giant area uh, or to the fire giant area in the in the frozen spot. And it just was miserable. I'm not saying it's a bad area, actually. A couple hours of it's fine, but it's just like that's the only area where I just genuinely like, oh, okay, I want to leave. I don't want to be here. Um, I'm not going to say every part of Elden Ring is perfect, nor am I going to say every aspect of the open world is great. There are parts that are confusing sometimes there are parts that don't make sense in its layout and it's a little bit of a headache to walk around there's the parts in the lakes of Lurinia that give me a little bit of a headache so it's not the greatest thing ever it's not the but once you get all the sites of grace you can fast travel and it's fine once you learn all and, and that's just a few small shortcomings there's no bullshit objectives it's not awkwardly made there are so many open world games that are so awkwardly made I can't even traverse them at all at least in Elden Ring you can actually go anywhere you want at any point that's the other thing other than the final boss and maybe a couple of the final bosses because you do have to do a few things to unlock them you have to kill a few bosses to get to that point but other than that almost any boss you can just get to I, I think actually maybe you could get to the final boss now, now, you have to do a few things that uh, unlock that phase. They do have a few. They're all natural. They all feel fine. It's not, like, convoluted. Um, but there are a few things you have to do to get the actual final boss. You can't just beeline it right to them like Ghost Recon, which is fine. I mean, you don't want to. But um, but there are a lot of bosses. Oh, fuck ton of the bosses. In fact, like, six of them... What is it? Ten? Eight? eight to ten main bosses, six of them, you could just beeline to right from the start of the game if you choose. Some of the hurdles are only just unlocking the areas. So really, the only uh, downside I find to the game is when I have to unlock certain areas. Yeah, I just find it a pain. I gotta go get this metal, I gotta get that metal, that's it. I, I just don't like doing that. It's just not fun for me. It just, those moments feel a little unnecessary, a little filler. The game is expansive enough. It's hard enough to get to that area without a sight of grace, not hard, it just takes long enough to get there. Don't make me go find something and come back. I hate shit like that. And yet, that's semi-common. At least the three of four of the regions, but it's not the end of the world. It really isn't. It's not too bad. It's a little mind-numbingly boring. But the enemy variety, the combat mechanics, the amount of stuff you can find is phenomenal. Also, there's no weight limit. Unless of what you equip immediately. There is a weight limit to that. So what you have equipped on you is the weight limit. If you got three great swords on you, you're going to be slower. Like it actually slows you down as soon as you add anything. Or take away anything, it makes you lighter. And it shows light, medium, heavy load. I can't quite tell if there's any fine-tuning between that. Like if you're a light load and you add a small thing and it's, you're still a light load, does that still make you heavy? Or is it three preset just... You're either in that zone or you're not. You know what I mean? 
I don't know if there is. I haven't looked it up. It feels like there is. It feels like as soon as, even if I'm a light load, say I have 23 out of 99. I don't know if it's pounds, but we're going to assume it's pounds. And I'm a light load. Let's say I take something off and I'm now 18. I feel I'm just a half, half a frame quicker, really. I do. Maybe it's just a placebo sort of effect, but I do feel like that. So anyway, that's another convenience thing. I hate it when Skyrim just had that limit of everything. You could carry literally everything you want that you've collected in Elden Ring. I wouldn't because the issue with that is organization, like if you have to quickly swap a weapon. Like, I would put a lot of stuff in your chest that you don't need or you don't regularly use. If you want to go grab it, you can. Um, it's easy. Any side of grace, you can grab it. It's just that way your favorite weapons are in your inventory. And that way... It's just more efficient that way, but to each your own. There are people who just carry everything. I just find that very tricky to find what you want because sometimes things look similar, especially when you're about to be killed and you need to quickly switch a weapon that you don't have quick, quickly uh, in your in your quick item equip sh- quick item equip slot. That's a mouthful. So anyway, Elden Ring is a phenomenal design because it lets you explore naturally. There's no markers. There's nothing telling you where to go. There's nothing telling you how to do what you got to do. It's just, you're going to get fucked a lot. It's a very difficult game. It's focused on its combat. It knows that. It knows its combat is key. It knows you're fighting. 99% of the time, it's just trying to point you to who to fight next. Sometimes it's small fodder who still fuck you up with the one to three rule. But oftentimes, you know, it's a unique enemy. And they all have unique looks. They're all found in different regions. Sometimes they duplicate over you're like why what are you doing over here you're supposed to be over there you know and yeah and sometimes you have invasions and then add a little spice of uh, excitement and suspense you get pvp invasions if you have that turned on sometimes people could just invade you and try to fuck your shit up and of course you can summon co-op though it's tedious it's doable anyway Elden Ring is a phenomenal example of open world games and i hope more more follow suit with a minimalist approach allow the things to be found on a wiki if people really need it but like don't overload the people let them explore and reward that exploration give them an item let them progress and have things to do elden ring there is no mini games there is no bullshit in the way there's no poker games there's no golf trips there's no npc fetch quests there isn't it's phenomenal now that i think of it there's like maybe five and they're all pretty pivotal to what you have to do you don't have to when you finish a quest, you don't have to go turn it into people other than one or two exceptions, and it's perfectly fine, and it's easy to get back to them. Um, in Elder Scrolls Online, in my first 45 minutes, I spent 20 of those minutes talking to people, accepting a crap ton of tw- quests. The map was huge, and it was one... It was, the map was almost the size of Elden Ring, and it was just one of the eight areas. It was ridiculous. And... It was cluttered with shit to do. It was clumsy movement and was super fucking difficult to navigate. Everything looked similar or the same and nothing looked distinct. You could tell Elden Ring was meticulously crafted to be very distinct, unique, and give you a sense of wonder and exploration. And then it fucked you. Have a good day, everybody. Appreciate the love. Until next time.